welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm out of works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right. Today's guest is a repeater on the farm and a heavyweight one at that. He is the host of the Operation GCD podcast. There he offers a shenanigans infused journey into the mind of that particular garbage can dude live slash recorded from his studio slash spare bedroom in the foothills of Appalachia directly from the overdose capital of America. Adding comedy to conspiracy theory, he explores the topics of secret societies and other occult groups and such tactics subjects and our modern era of censorship some of those podcasts and series written on article written written articles on the operation gcd website include the founding fathers and the mounds they loved smiley face killers and modern day human ritual sacrifice question mark and smells like laurel canyon the secret history of grunge rock before his foray into the world of quote-unquote conspiracy theory podcasting he traveled the world for a couple of decades as the poster child of the u.s air force military police in those travels he discovered the occult history of america the society of cincinnati and america ancient architecture the mountains folks i give you guys the great jj vance steven great to be here again appreciate the invite and uh this is going to be some interesting subject matter we go over today because the film we're going to discuss is one of my favorite films and at least of recent years and i think it's deeply rooted in a lot of the occult history of los angeles which has been a Matter of our discussions as of late. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure regular listeners, the farmer aware too. It's been on my mind a lot. <laughs> sure. <laughs> as is always the case when JJ drops by, we have got a great and mind blowing show on tap for you guys. This time around, we're going to be using Paul Tom, uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson film inherent vice as a springboard for those of you in the know the possibilities for this are freaking endless it's based on a thomas pension novel and adapted by paul thomas anderson after all right both of these boys know a thing or two about parapolitics and esotericism and while not technically a part of the alpha course series we are definitely going to get into some of the same characters and locations that turn up in that one so if you dig uh the dark and weird side of la as it's never been told before this is going to be right down your alley so on that note let's start the show
All right, JJ, let's start with the source. Oftentimes, that's the best after all. In this case, it's Thomas Pynchon. I'm sure most people listening to this have some familiarity with this gentleman, but for the uninitiated, can you give us a rundown here? Well, I mean, quite honestly, I wish I was more familiar with some of, some of his other works. I, I am uniquely familiar with his book, Inherent Vice, which is actually I read before I actually, the you know, before I watched the film. So I was familiar with it when the film came out and I was... Uh, uh, maybe about a, maybe about a year before the film came out, I read the book. So I was it was a very it was a edge of my seat waiting for the film to to kind of come out to see how uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was going to spin it because Paul Thomas Anderson himself is an interesting character. So um, I outside of outside of quite honestly, Stephen, outside of uh, Pinchon's work with Inherent Vice, I'm not sure that I've read another one of his books. To be quite to be quite honest with you. Well, I mean, I'm uh, in the same boat with you. The only one I've read is The Crying of Lot 49. So, well, I will see if I can provide a few additional details here on uh, Thomas Pynchon because um, he does have quite a fascinating uh, background as well as an even more fascinating family background. Uh, so as to the later, let's let's start with that. Um, okay, so I'm quoting here from an excellent online uh, essay on uh, pension. It's called Pensions Politics, the Presence of an Absence by Charles Holander. And it has quite a, a strong rundown here of some of his family ties. So I'm going to quote from that here extensively. So it goes, uh, since Pynchon's family has a long and powerful history, we're better to begin to know him. The Pynchon clan is a band of blue bloods principled enough to align themselves with the wrong side during not one, but two American revolutions, the 18th century one and the 20th century one, who have suffered social and economic reversals, even suicide as a consequence. But let me proceed chronologically. The pensions are traceable back to the 11th century. According to Matthew Winston's The Quest for Pension, uh, the earliest pension on record is one Pinso, sworn brother in war to Indo, who came to England from Normandy with William the Conqueror. So you've got the Norman connection right there. Anyway, continuing with this uh, essay here. By 1533, one Nicholas Pension was appointed High Sheriff of London, so he must have been on pretty good terms with the Crown, and Sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Sign of Four, published in 1890. There's a pension lane in an old section of late 19th century London. In 1630, William Pension brought his family and considerable capital to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. As a panty, he helped found both Ruxbury and Springfield, along with other such founding fathers as Miles Morgan, ancestor of the financier J.P. Morgan. William Pynchon stayed for 20 years until he was forced to leave for writing a religious tract, The Matriculous Price of Our Redemption, which argued against the prevailing orthodoxy of the Puritans and was banned and burned in Boston. Waters' genealogical gleanings notes that from William Pynchon's son, John, a descendant, all who bear the name in America, John Pynchon was one of the leading citizens of the colony, according to New Columbia Encyclopedia, and his signature is affixed to an oath of allegiance drafted after the, quote, glorious revolution of William and Mary. 
along with the Morgans, the Pynchons were among the wealthiest and most influential families in New England. One of John's descendants, Joseph Pynchon, was groomed to become a governor of Connecticut and would have been had he not been loyal to the crown. <clears throat> the first Ruggles Pen Tom, the first Thomas Ruggles Pynchon was a physician during the revolutionary period his 19th century descendant the reverend thomas ruggles pension was a chemist and an educator eventually becoming the president of trinity college of hartford when nathaniel hawthorne published the house of seven of the seven gables in 1851 with its less than flattering portrayal of a family named pension he received letters of complaint from two pensions of that generation and one letter the reverend wrote Thomas Ruggles Pension wrote, we know of no pensions, not of our little band. The important stock brokerage, Pension & Co., which rose to prominence during the early 20th century, must have staffed, but must have been staffed by the same family. The house was frequently mentioned by the New York Times during the 20s and 30s. The Times published abstracts of prestigious prestigious uh, pension and co-publications and projections, just as it's abstracts these studies of Merrill Lynch today. The titles range over topics of interest to investors, the aviation industry, survey of public utilities, the gas industry, and the ambitious electric light and power survey of world development. The firm was clearly well-connected and enjoyed great favor. It had offices in New York, Chicago, Milwaukee, Battle Creek, London, Paris, Liverpool, and Liverpool. When Pension & Co. talked, people listened. In April 1929, Pension & Co. announced they would open a new Chicago office. By 1929, after October 24th, Black Thursday of the stock market crash, the firm had suffered noticeable reversals. The Times reported that Mrs. Harold Pension had to get an injunction to prevent Pension & Co. from selling her personal stock to pay the debt of her husband, <clears throat> a high-ranking executive in the firm. The senior partner, George M. Pension, tried desperately to come up with some technical breakthrough to stem the tide. In 1930, he backed experiments with a, quote, diesel-electric boat and a glider boat, Alas, neither paid off. By April 1931, the firm was suspended from the New York Stock Exchange and went into receivership. The Irving Trust Company took charge as a receiver. According to the financial historian, historian Ferdinand Ludberg, the Irving Tro Trust Company was a bank in the Morgan DuPont sphere. Pension & Co. was one of the largest brokerages in the country, the largest ever to have been suspended from the New York Stock Exchange. The day after the New York Stock Exchange announced the suspension of Pension & Co., the Times noted a drop in the stock value of U.S. Steel and John Manville, the two firms closely associated with J.P. Morgan. The Financial Times writers analyzed Pension & Co.'s difficulties due to its involvement together with Chase Securities Corporation in Fox Film and General Theaters. The final blow came when the Fox stock fell under attack and its value was driven down by large-scale sailing, dumps, and dumping. According to Upton Sinclair's Upton Sinclair Presents William Fox from 1933, the Chase Bank was instrumental in the fall of Fox Films to 
that time the largest industrial failure in the history of American affairs. Sinclair goes into excruciating detail and concluding that the deal which forced Pension and Co. into receivership was a terrible trap. In America's 60 Families from 1937, Lundberg described the affair as another of the many unsavory episodes in which the Chase Bank, later to become Chase Manhattan, took the leading role. Sinclair also points out that, quote, the only two bankers in New York who showed sympathy for our Fox were Edward Rothschild of the Chalicia Bank and Bernard Marcus of the Bank of the United States. Note the Rockefeller uh, Bank on one side, the the Rothschilds Bank on the other. An official spokesman for the Chase Bank told the Times that Chase was merely in the position of being one of numerous creditors of the firm, Pension & Co., but had no special interest in its affairs, expressing what sounds rather like a pro forma disinterest of eventual divorce asked about and ex-spouse's setbacks. In March 1932, Pension and Co. had liabilities of $19.7 million and assets of about $12.8 million, the Times reported. These were not inconsequential, inconsequential sums when a new Chevrolet cost about $600. Pension & Co. went under and there was much subsequent scandal. One of Mrs. Helen Delaney Pension made news in 1931 saved from a jail term by the benefits of her former employer, mining engineer Raymond Brooks, when she was convicted of robbing him of $45,000. Uh, <laughs> Later, uh, the George M. Pension estate would be sold. No end of incommunity. Its furniture dispersed at public auction, from contemplating the world's electric needs to the equivalent of a garage sale. Still later, in 1939, a Spanish nobleman was awarded almost $90,000 in a suit for illegal stock conversion against 22 former partners of Pension & Co. Perhaps it was in part as a consequence of such humiliation that George M. Pension Jr. committed suicide in 1940 in the stables of his Long Island estate. So, yeah, that is quite a colorful family history, and there appears to have been long-standing ties uh, between Pension's family and uh, the one who later became, and um, J.P. Morgan's family as well, which is also equally interesting here. Um, in fact, I think they might have actually intermarried here at one point or another, so, and then also you obviously saw two, possibly some connections here to um, the DuPonts as well. So, yeah, he came from a very, very blue blood family, um, which the author of this essay, Hollander, uh, actually would argue would shape his political views here in terms of the American power structure. He notes, uh, to know Pension is to know his family's history, his passion for history and historical method to see how political consciousness of a historical kind becomes central to Pension's aesthetic, becomes one of Pension's penchants. Pension writes, Writing evokes the dispossessed heirs of the old American dynasty based on steel, coal, and railroads. He writes much as Faulkner wrote of the dispossessed heirs of the agrarian self, but as Faulkner attributed 
evil to the carpetbagger agents of the industrial north. J.P. Morgan is a villain. Pynchon attributes evil to the agents of new multinational petrochemical dynasty. J.P. Morgan is a victim. So yes, it seems like there was a bit of an axe to grind here with the Rockefeller family. And I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked by this, but yeah, this is all kind of unfolding during a particular era when um, the Rockefeller branch was aggressively pushing J.P. Morgan to really become the the dominant uh, U.S. family of that particular era. So there was a lot of intrigues with that, which is fascinating. So let's get into a few more things here about Mr. Pynchon's background. So he uh, was born in 1937 and he grew up in Glen Clove, Long Island. Long Island, um, again, obviously has a very interesting history. A lot of strange stuff has happened there over the years. And interestingly, he eventually ended up at Oyster Bay High School in Oyster Bay, Long Island. This is um, an especially prestigious neighborhood. And I believe specifically this is the one that the Roosevelt family and uh, Theodore Roosevelt's branch of the family, um, the FB, FDR and Theodore Roosevelt branches of that particular family did not really get along very well, um, to put it mildly. But he grew up in this uh, particular region where their family was long based there. And interestingly enough, he eventually married his literary agent, Melaine Jackson, who was a great granddaughter of Theodore Roosevelt. So, yeah, and this would be the prep. There's actually quite a few Theodore Roosevelt's out there. They, um, the oldest males uh, in Teddy's family would just kind of keep naming their you know, oldest sons Theodore over and over again. But this is the one who was actually the president that I'm talking about here. So... Yeah, that's uh, really interesting and maybe indicates, too, that Pynchon's a little more right-wing than uh, many people have assumed that he is. So anyway, uh, he came from this really prestigious background, and he ends up, uh, he graduated high school, actually, at about 16 years old, which is interesting as well. I've uh, I'm trying to look in to see if he was possibly a gifted kid, but I haven't really been able to come up with much on that end. But he ended up going to uh, Cornell University to study engineering physics around 1953, and then ended up enlisting in the U.S. Navy um, at the end of his sophomore year. Spent two years in the Navy and was on the USS Hank uh, in the Mediterranean during the Suez Crisis in 56. It was uh, when Britain and France had invaded uh, Egypt and all this other good stuff. So that was interesting, uh, especially with the Navy connection. His time in the Navy appears to have heavily influenced a lot of his later work as well. Uh, I know there's, I haven't read uh, anything other than The Crying of Lot 49 and a few parts of Vineland, but certainly the impression I got from some of the other accounts I've read is that his time in the Navy did have a pretty substantial influence on him, as well as his time working for Boeing uh, during the early 60s, I believe. Now, while he was at Cornell, he came into contact with some interesting people. 
Um, on the one hand, it's widely believed that he at least attended a few lectures given by Vladimir Nabokov, who was, of course, uh, the famous author of Lolita. He was uh, teaching there at the time. Um, there has been a certain amount of dispute over whether or not he did attend Nabokov's uh, lectures, but the general consensus is that he at least went to one or two of them. And he was also there with some other interesting writers, too. Um, one was Kirkpatrick Sale, and the other was uh, Richard Farina. Um, as for Kirkpatrick Sale, he's known more uh, for his political commentary. And he's an interesting guy because he really followed, I would say, in the um, the path that was blazed, uh, blazed by Carl Oglesby and his Yankee and the Cowboys uh, war which is an amazing work, though it's maybe somewhat dated now. But Kirkpatrick Sale uh, did a couple of similar uh, works along in that vein that really kind of analyzed uh, the U.S. power structure in terms of, you know, the different regions of the country from the New England side of it and, uh, you know, the whole area around like Wall Street and Philadelphia and so forth. And then on the other hand, a lot of the emerging elites from the South and the West. So uh, that is interesting in light of some of the things we were just talking about there in terms of pensions, um, ties to old Yankee families. Um it would certainly be interesting to know some of the, the conversations that they had in that regard or how much uh, some of Pynchon's personal history might have influenced Kirkpatrick's sales later analysis of the um, different American power structures. Um, as for Richard Farina, he is most well known for being down so long. It looks like Up to Me, which I believe uh, also inspired the One Door song, on a Woman, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I've had a copy of this book, actually, I think since I was in high school, but sadly, I still haven't gotten around to reading it. Yeah, I know. I know. Epic fail, right? Um, but uh, Farina was, again, another kind of big counterculture figure. Uh, he had reportedly also had some ties to the um, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, as well as uh, Cuba and the Fidelists. So um, he definitely was quite politically active in a lot of uh, you know far left causes during the '60s. He had also married, uh, I believe, Joan Baez's sister, if I remember correctly. And was also a pretty close friend of Bob Dylan's as well. So definitely he was a very big part of the countercultural scene around the late 1960s. And then uh, he died suddenly uh, not long after Been Down So Long was released, which is generally uh considered to be his masterpiece and you know again this certainly raises a lot of questions as to how much uh, that experience might have influenced him uh, because pension did apparently believe that there might have been something suspect about 
Farina's death, uh, especially given, you know, the fact that it happened not long after he had published this really celebrated novel. Um, in fact, going back to this essay I was reading here on uh, Pynchon's politics uh, by Hollander, uh, there's an interesting blurb about Farina here. It goes, um, on the About the Author page at the end of Long Time Coming, the Random House editors wrote, two days after the publication had been down so long, it looks like up to me Richard Farina was killed in a motorcycle accident near Carmel, California, was killed, implying agency, not died as a result of injuries, nourishes the germ of intelligent, not paranoid suspicion. And Gravity's Rainbow, dedicated to Freena Pension, writes, prophets traditionally don't last long. They are either killed outright or given an accident serious enough to make them stop and think most often they do pull back. Pension seems to be referring to both Farina and Dylan, believing fearing suspecting which is it that farina was killed outright and that dylan was given an accident so <clears throat> that uh, also sort of provides an interesting dynamic uh possibly to pension's character uh, certainly he's known as being a <clears throat> quote-unquote reclusive figure uh, he's granted almost no interviews. There are very few pictures available of him um, from after the 60s. So there's been a lot of speculation as to why he has uh, so fanatically avoided um, you know, the press and that kind of thing. And who knows, maybe if he did have some suspicions about... Um, you know, what might have happened to several of his friends as writers, well, maybe that uh, might provide us with some insight as to why he has kept such a low profile for decades now. Uh, the fact that he has kept such a low profile has also led to a lot of interesting claims about him. Of course, one is that he and J.D. Salinger, the author of Catcher in the Rye, are actually the same person. This is kind of an interesting claim, actually. Of course, there's a lot of theories about some of the stuff in Salinger's work as well. Um, but yeah, that has uh, generally been pretty thoroughly debunked. At one point, it was also claimed that he was the Unabomber, which I thought was hysterical. And uh, there were also allegations at one point that he was a sympathizer for the Waco branch uh, Davidian, Davidians uh, during the 1993 siege. So, yeah, there's been a lot of very interesting rumors about Pynchon over the years. But, yeah, he is, um, he is certainly a colorful character, to put it mildly. Uh, one last thing, too, that I thought was interesting is that... Um, just this past December, it was announced that the Huntington Library had acquired the Larry Archives and typescripts and all these other stuff, the drafts and pensions, novels, and so forth, which is really interesting. The Huntington Library is uh, based out of, is out of California. It was set up by Henry E. Huntington, um, part of the Huntington family that is just insanely powerful and has been for any number of years. They're a big society of Cincinnati family. They've been tied in with just um, a whole milieu of different orders and groups and so forth over the years. So I thought that that was interesting that um, 
the library named after them had gotten uh, Pynchon's novels, but again, as another major East Coast dynasty, I suppose that's not entirely surprising. But anyway, so much for Mr. Pynchon. I think that's more than enough background for now on him. All right. Well, can you give us uh, a little bit of uh, overview of what maybe some of the changes were made uh, from the novel Inherent Vice to the film, if any of that were significant? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think there's a couple of them that were at least one that, that I often hear when I try to discuss the film with anybody who's watched it <laughs> is that they're very oftentimes confused about some of the storyline uh, aspects of the film, whereas the film begins with a, a clearly a narrator, female voice narrator, who that same female voice and female pops up throughout numerous times of the film as an actual character, whereas in the book, the narrator and the female friend of the, of the, of the main character, uh, Jacqueline Phoenix, is, uh, that Jacqueline Phoenix stars as um, in the film, he, uh, his friend and the narrator are two different characters in the book. So I think going into the film, understanding that aspect before you watch it is, I think is actually relatively important because it does oftentimes I find confuse some folks. However, I think he intentionally did that that way because there's a very hallucinogenic psychedelic underlying tone throughout the entire book and, and having this trippy kind of aspect of, is this, uh, uh, is the main character hallucinating right now? Is he not hallucinating? As, because again, as Jaquan Phoenix's character throughout the film mentions hallucinations throughout the entire time. There's numerous instances throughout the entire film that he, he mentions, you know, scribbling down a notepad and, you know, not hallucinating right now, you know, that kind of thing. So it kind of adds an extra layer to that element of the storyline as well, I think. And I believe that's likely at least my interpretation of why Paul Thomas Anderson would combine those characters in the film is well, he was going to continue to press on that, on that kind of underlying psychedelic trippy hallucinogenic story underlying tones of the storyline i know the other reason he kind of cited for that too was uh he wanted to preserve some of the pensions prose uh in the movie which i can kind of understand it's uh i think a lot of her dialogue was actually like what just basically lifted directly from the book right it was um no yeah that's a good that's a good way to frame it too and i was unfamiliar that that was something that paul thomas anderson had said but that makes sense because that is essentially what he captured by doing that yeah all right. Do you want to move on then to uh, Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson here, uh, the uh, auteur behind this particular picture? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he's made some good films. He's got a, quite a catalog of, uh, you know, some some uh, motion pictures that are of some sort of, you know, unique note or unique, uh, you know, uh, storytelling. I mean, the one that comes to mind as far as unique storytelling goes, which I think kind of plays into the way he kind of framed inherent the film inherent vice from the, from the Penchon novel was uh, the way Paul Thomas Anderson told the story of um, uh, why is it escaping my, my head right now with Tom Cruise and the frogs that rain down. Magnolia. I was just thinking Magnolia. That's my favorite, that's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson. Movie, but... Yeah. Th I think he did a good job there as far as the interesting way he told that story. I think, you can kind of see that that's some of the skill sets that Paul Thomas Anderson has is taking a story and having a unique kind of blend to it. Not a, not a, not a Shyamalan twist or anything like that with M. Night Shyamalan, but you know, because uh, his, his films are all the same. They're very formulaic. They follow the same kind of, you know, I'm going to trick you with one of these details towards the end and it's probably not going to make sense anymore. Once you, once you, once that occurs and the, the, you know, as, Sh Shyamalan, you know, continue to do that trend. They tend to get worse. They didn't get better. 
where Paul Thomas Anderson has seems to be, you know, finding new and invent, innovative ways into, uh, you know, creating a, an interesting uh, and unique perspective on the story, which again, I think he, he did in, in spades in capturing the way he, 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 he told the story of Penchon's novel in Heron Vice. But yeah, Magnolia was a great one. And I think, uh, you know, <laughs> relative to, uh, to, um, to Magnolia, you have uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tom Cruise. These are all individuals. Tom Cruise is obviously a, a well-known Scientologist. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I suspect, had some Scientology ties at some point in his career. And that brings me into the other, another Paul Thomas Anderson film, which is The Master, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman playing L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, doing an L. Ron Hubbard uh, film, uh, biopic, I mean. Yeah. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, no, I have not seen that one, but yeah, that's on my uh, list of ones to watch. And uh, it's also interesting to know too; he did Boogie Nights as well, if I remember. That was, yeah, that was that was my next that was my next one on my Paul Thomas Anderson list. Past those movies, I'm not sure that I, off the top of my head at least, that I can, I can say that I enjoyed a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and this is why. But yeah, Boogie Nights is a good one because that that again, he's he's capturing, uh, you know, uh, some occulted history of of Los Angeles, you know, and all of these events within at least the, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, they all have some deep interconnections between all the parties involved. We had the law enforcement parties, the district attorney parties, the, the actual perpetrators of crimes, the culprits of the crimes. You know, those folks are many, many regards intertwined or, or the same people. And I think Boogie Nights is another film where he's captured a little bit of that as well with the four on the floor murders connected kind of it's the it's the John Holmes story essentially, right? But I mean, John Holmes's yeah. demise was, was the four on the floor murders in at the was at nineteen seventy eight or so. Uh, I think there in Laurel Canyon, like the early eighties. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the also known as the Wonderland murders. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's a uh, yeah. It was kind of what the climax, I guess, of the uh, the grisly history of uh, uh, Laurel Canyon during that era, the sort of hippie era. <laughs> Yeah, so I think Paul Thomas Anderson did a good job capturing some of some of the uh, some of the more interesting kind of tangential stories around that. I mean, they didn't really go into the the murder aspects like uh, the film Wonderland did with Val Kilmer, which he starred as John Holmes in that one, and uh, that was a more of an in depth look into the actual murders. But nonetheless, the what I what I actually gained from Boogie Nights in large part was just how much. The industry is just the industry in Los Angeles. It's not the porn industry. It's not the Hollywood industry. It's just the industry. They're all, all of these characters are intertwined and interconnected. That was kind of what the, one of the, you know, the kind of the salient characteristics that I kind of gained from an understanding of from, from Boogie Nights. Yeah, another uh, interesting thing about um, one of Anderson's movies, this would be Punk Love, uh, which he did with Adam Sandler. I think I saw that back in the day, but I can't remember. Oh, yes, I actually have seen that as well. I, I forgot that was one of his. It was a strange one. It was a different one. Well, that's one for sure. Of, one of the things that's interesting about that era, the, the graphics in that movie were done by a fellow named Jeremy Blake, who was an artist. And... Um, there was the bizarre incident involving him and his longtime girlfriend, uh, Teresa Duncan, uh, from 2007, when uh, they had both committed suicide uh, within a week of each other. She had committed suicide on July 10th, 2007, and then 
he had allegedly walked out into the ocean. This is in the New York City area on uh, July 17th, 2007. But it's interesting because they had both been living uh, in L.A. Uh, they had uh, stronger roots to New York City, but they had been living in L.A. I think around like 2000 or about maybe 04, 05 or something like that after Blake's career had started heating up and um, Duncan, who was a video game designer, had started working on a script for a movie called Alice Underground. It was going to be based on, you know, the Alice in Wonderland mythos. Um, but in the... Uh, actually for a couple of years leading up to their suicides uh they had both been complaining of uh harassment and specifically from scientologists uh it was i guess i guess originally related to the movie that duncan was developing alice in wonderland or alice underground uh because he had at first uh, through the connections with blake or she had first did her connections with her and blake had tried to enlist back the singer who's a known Scientologist in it, and he had been interested in the project. And then allegedly, uh, Mr. Tom Cruise had also uh, gotten an interest in it. And then for whatever reason, had decided to torpedo the project, uh, which in theory is what it led to their uh, antagonism with the Scientology cult. And they had, you know, from that point onward, it started making a lot of claims about it. So, the whole thing with that is really interesting as well because and you see some of these kind of figures cropping up in that and the whole thing with the suicide kind of became a uh a minor media sensation uh you know in the late knots even into like the early part of the last decade so the whole thing is very strange with the scientology connections and also the links to this you know particular milieu of uh hollywood people no, absolutely. And uh, I saw your note on that, on those uh, suicides or the alleged suicides. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, from, from, I didn't take a deep dive into it, but it, it certainly seems odd. And it also seems like there wasn't like in many, like, for example, in almost all the smiley face killer victim uh, incidents and murders, they, um, there's no legitimate inquiry into how did this person die? And it seemed like the uh, folks there in New York, the authorities were just happy to wrap up these folks death and just call it a day. And, uh, uh, you know, so it always draws into suspicion when they, especially they die in such close proximity in time and place. And it, it simply, it does seem to, to draw a lot more questions than answers out of the situation. As far as the Scientology band goes, yeah, they're, they're, a, they're a pretty intrusive and uh, uh, dark group at times. And especially when it comes to gang stalking. I mean, if you're from anyone, any, if you're familiar with uh, the, the gang stalking yeah, kind no, of. Yeah, 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 no doubt. Yeah. And the, if, the folks of the interwebs are kind of familiar with that. A lot of those tactics have been, I'm not going to say invented by Scientology, but we'll all say perfected by Scientology. And, uh, and I, what I find a lot of these groups within Hollywood Scientologists is they like to work together. So you pointed out how these folks were, were in the production of working on the production of a, an Alice under, you know, in Wonderland adaptation and Tom Cruise signed on and, and Beck um, has signed on. And, you know, yeah, both of those are prominent Scientologists. I think Beck recently has claimed to have departed Scientology, but he grew up in Scientology. He, his entire life, he'd been in Scientology. His father is a prominent Scientologist. You can't make him, you cannot make, a, you cannot score a film in Hollywood without incorporating Beck's father. I'll just put it that way. That he's deeply involved and within, within connections, within these ranking people within Scientology, I think that's Scientology's grasp into the Hollywood scene altogether as a whole. 
And so when you have these strange deaths, you know, like for another example, like Philip Seymour Hoffman. So just immediately following Paul Thomas Anderson and Philip Seymour Hoffman doing the film, the master with Yaquan Phoenix again, uh, again, they don't, he's not named L Ron Hubbard in the film, but he's obvious Seymour Hoffman's characters clearly L Ron Hubbard. You know, it's a, it's a take on L Ron Hubbard's kind of creation of Scientology. And I, I, I strongly suspect that that led to Philip Seymour Hoffman's death. Um, it was widely reported he died of heroin overdose. But if you look at the details and the contents of what, what, what the scene was there, it, it was it was it has more of an appearance of a, a stage scene of death of a heroin overdose with somebody who doesn't understand heroin, right? Because I mean, he had like twenty bags of baggies of heroin littered across his, his dead body on the bed. Supposedly how, is how the scene goes. His, his, his murder, his, his death scene. You know, what I like just more more likely murder than an accidental or overdose or suicide by by Hoffman himself. But yeah, he uh, the Scientology folks they they don't understand that they hate drugs. Psychiatrists, you know, any kind of pharmaceutical these are all these are all their number one enemies. So to me, the Philip Seymour Hoffman death reeks more of a Scientologist staging the scene who does not understand heroin. Because one, if you're gonna, you know, part of it was he was distraught and was going to commit suicide. He took an overdose. I think it was how the official story went. Well, that's the case. Why why you have twenty bags of heroin? scattered across your body you know that's not again it would take just the one dose you know what i mean so and i think you know when, when it comes down to what the, how scientologists retaliate in this in the whole gang stalking principles they're pretty yeah they're pretty aggressive it's not a it's not something they take lightly so there's a number of things that can they can they could uh you know put the target of scientology on on the these filmmakers that, that allegedly committed suicide yeah, no, I mean, it, it's interesting, too, looking at the media response to the Blink and, uh, Blake and Duncan suicides as well, because they, you know, they depict their claims about harassment as Scientology. It's like it was some kind of big delusion or something that they could be uh, stalked by them. But, I mean, no, it's, you know, I should emphasize, I mean, the, the documented cases of Scientology engaging in harassment campaigns against people who have criticized the church who have left it i mean it's very extensive it's just the media depictions of those the claims that they were making were just ludicrous in terms of that um well that's interesting yeah so you're basically then what you're saying is the media is kind of helping spin the scientology yeah they really were pushing the narrative it was just you know a basic suicide they were delusional duncan was depressed because the you know she had maybe done some minor plagiarism which was going to come out or something and that had led to these delusions that she was working on a movie back and tom cruise and there's some kind of scientology conspiracy because i should say that the links to that uh, tom cruise was involved with this beck had actually i think mentioned in an italian newspaper in 03 that he was working on a project called alice in the ground with several close friends of his cruise i don't know that it's ever really been i mean certainly he i think has always denied those claims but it's certainly possible, especially again with the Paul Thomas Anderson connection to this. I mean, he had done Magnolia with Cruz not too long ago, and Paul Thomas Anderson was really the guy who had uh, broken Blake into Hollywood because he actually had a lot of other projects that he was uh, working on at the time as well. So it's no, I mean, it comports to me. I mean, from what you're saying, it comports to me. It's that's kind of how these folks operate. They work together. 
All right, so how about the cast? There are some interesting actors used in this film. I know we've already alluded to them a little bit, but do you have like any uh, in-depth uh, thoughts on some of the cast members in this one? And then Heron Vice, that is to say. Yeah, I mean, Yaquan Phoenix, again, a reoccurring actor in Paul Thomas Anderson films. I believe his wife is a is a, uh, is a a uh, professed Scientologist. His wife? I'm trying to think now. So he's married to, I'm sorry, I think it's his sister. I believe it's his sister because I believe it's uh, Casey Affleck. Ben Affleck's younger brother is married to Yaquan Phoenix's younger sister. I believe her name's Rain. And that's an interesting family altogether. The Phoenix family, of course, you have, you know, Rivers Phoenix, who met his uh, strange and untimely death at a very young age. But collectively, the Phoenix family there, they, the, uh, I believe it's Rain, Yaquan Phoenix, and, and uh, Rivers Phoenix, they grew up in a sex cult and they're not the only Hollywood actors or actresses to have grown up in that same exact sex cult. But I, I find it, you know, I, I think if I recall correctly, I remember Rivers Phoenix saying he lost his virginity at the age of three in an interview he did in the nineties, which that's, that's disturbing on many levels, but you know, it, it speaks to me, it speaks volumes to these, these, you know, cult members, Essentially, even if they're not part of the same cult, intermingling and networking, networking together in between cults, some inter, inter and intra cult activities of networking, if you will. So I, I, I suspect Phoenix's role is somewhere somewhere wrapped up in Paul, Tom, you know, as a reoccurring actor in Paul Thomas Anderson films is somewhere wrapped up in that in that kind of storyline. So that's an interesting character, and then you have some some other actors and actresses in the film Inherent Vice, I think are somewhat interesting as well. You know, Josh Brolin is uh, kind of, kind of plays a, a main antagonist in the film for Yaquan Phoenix, Yaquan Phoenix's character and Phoenix, or I'm sorry. Uh, and Brolin, I mean, he's, he's obviously had a resurgence in his career. He, you know, he started, the, started the Goonies and uh, you know, a number of other things uh, in the early late eighties and early nineties and kind of fell off, the, fell off the Hollywood radar for a good decade, at least um, before he got a starring role again. I think he, uh, you know, has a few supporting roles, but you know, he's back in starring roles now and he's, you know, his main, main, uh, main cast of characters, you know, in the, in the cast of, of the film, he's one of the, one of the top noted, uh, top credited actors, but it, you know, he's, he's also from old kind of old Hollywood, if you will. His father is, you know, decades in Hollywood. His stepmother's Barbara Streisand, you know, again. So that's kind of, I think he's, he's kind of, uh, and they're, you know, both Brolin and Streisand were at the era of the film Inherent Vice. And, you know, the film takes place in 1970. And at that time, I mean, they're, they're some of the hottest things in Hollywood, Brolin and Streisand. So I think Josh Brolin playing in, in the film is, is kind of an interesting aspect in, in that regard. plot line in Inherent Vice is driven by the disappearance of real estate tycoon Michael Z. Mickey Wolfman. In general, he's a pretty substantial part of the whole storyline, but he only appears on screen once in a marvelous cameo by Mr. Eric Roberts. 
So I'm of the opinion that Wolfman is a stand-in for, quote-unquote, Mr. Hollywood, Clyde E. Toberman. I addressed this guy at length in the second Albacore Mysteries episode. Besides being a major developer in L.A. and especially Hollywood, Toberman also appears to have bankrolled various right-wing groups for decades in L.A. And at the top of the list was Christian identity militant William Potter Gale. Now, I wanted to read here from a second from a book called Committee of the States Inside the Radical Right by uh, Cherry Seymour, who went on to write The Last Circle, which was an excellent book about the Thomas scandal. Um, but anyway, this is where she gets into the uh, possibilities here. Where, um, Well, anyway, you guys will see what I'm saying here when I get into this. Um, all right, so... Gale collected himself, and or excuse me, I should start probably above here. Okay, well, he began, this is Gale speaking, and stopped to bewildered. They all knew each other as patriots, right-wingers, if you want to call them that. Call them anything you want. He couldn't keep the edge of anger out of his voice. They were against the UN, and they were against communism, because there were a lot of communist activity in those days, in the movie business, and his eyes flashed. Hollywood didn't even know what communism was. They still don't. Gale collected himself and slumped forward, his elbows on his knees. Anyways, I just had been introduced to that element, you might say, living in Hollywood and meeting with people I didn't even know were connected with them, like one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood. My offices were in his building when I was with Bottle and Reed. He owned the Outpost Estates Development. I bought my home through his real estate agency. He owned the Masonic Temple on the Hollywood Boulevard. He built it. He owned the first federal savings and loan building on Hollywood Island. What was his name, Seymour asked. It was a long German name. I sent him up some of my material from my office to his executive suite, and he said, Oh, are you a friend of Gerald Smith? I said, Yeah. He said, so am I, but don't let anybody know it. He liked me, and he liked General Douglas MacArthur. Gerald Smith had all these millionaire people supporting him. So this is really interesting. If you look, if anybody was uh, listening, this has looked at uh, Toberman's uh, biography, and I urge you to do so after hearing that quote. There's absolutely no question about who... He, uh, Seymour or Gale in this case could be referencing other than Clyde E. Toberman. I know some, you know, academics, uh, trying to do quote unquote scholarly accounts of the uh, radical right have tried to dismiss Gale's claims in this instance, but to my mind, that is absolute nonsense because. First off, okay, this is a guy in the Christian identity underground. If you know even the slightest thing about this, that there's no freaking logical reason for him to claim that his financial sponsor is a huge mason in Hollywood. I mean, just, you know, this is like an even more extreme brand of the right than Alex Jones. So what would happen if Alex Jones came out and said, yeah, I've been financially supported for 30 years by this really big shot Freemason, guys? No, th th that makes no logical sense. The only reason yeah, that, would, that would be pretty wild. That would be pretty wild. I, would, I mean, I would, I would get a good laugh out of Alex Jones did that, but that would be pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the guy like Gale, I mean, he was hard into the militia movement here for a lot of years, which we'll get to later in this. So this is a guy who wasn't just, you know, running some kind of radio talk show. This is a guy who was involved with actual domestic terrorism and so forth. 
So, yeah, I, th- there's just no practical reason for Gail to claim that he was being sponsored in my mind by a prominent Mason, unless, uh, frankly, he was telling the truth in this case and was just trying right. to be honest for posterity. And, yeah, it might have been, sounds like you might have been trying to, you know, trying to brag a little bit, trying to get a, trying to, you know, trying to get some credit with whoever he's bragging to about it. And I mean, it certainly seems like Thomas Pension was of the same mind as well with just A, the name of this guy, Michael Z. Wolfman. Uh, Toberman was commonly known as Clyde E. Toberman. So, I mean, the names are almost played each other. And then on top of that, there's the name of the development that Gail owned his house at Outpost Estate. It's very similar to the development that Wolfman is trying to build in the movie. It's Clearview Estates, if I remember um, right off the top of my head. So, yeah. Ch- channel, channel view. Yeah, channel, channel view. Estates. Yeah, it had view in it. So, Well, and I thought that was an interesting thing as well, because it's, once again, focusing on the water aspects of Los Angeles, right, with the story of Channel View Estates. They just built a new aqueduct, and you get a, you get a great view of it <laughs> from the neighborhood. <laughs> so and of course obviously tension also you know since well i mean he directly implicates wolfman in sponsoring uh, a branch of the aryan brotherhood in the movie which is very interesting for reasons we'll get to later so again it's also like this wealthy developer uh also, Toberman might have been Jewish as well, much as Wolfman is depicted in the movie, funding these far-right groups that are, you know, not just politically far-right, but very militant and violent. And one of the things about the movie, too, that raised a really interesting point as to why a guy like this would be doing it was for the simple reason of clearing out uh areas or depressing the property values in areas that minority communities were in so that he could buy it up cheap and then turn it into these luxury um you know developments and given LA no, for sure that's definitely that's definitely and they, and they definitely covered that in the plot line there with the narrator in, in Phoenix when he's driving out to Channel View Estates for the first time there and uh they, they go visit the location you know he, the narrator is sitting in the passenger seat is, is depicted in the film but you, you know, that's exactly what she's she's narrating. You know, the long history of Los Angeles and and running out minorities from these neighborhoods just to turn them over and 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 into you know high price homes that these people could never afford when they used to live there. And so it's, they're, they're essentially displacing these minorities to other areas. And I mean, it's interesting because the whole uh, Christian identity movement really developed out of uh, the Los Angeles area with people like Gerald O.K. Smith, who Gail had just mentioned there. I mean, he was one of the first really big identity ministers, along with Wesley Swift. So, I mean, you know, again, obviously, Southern California has an extensive history of cults on the whole, which we'll get to here in a little bit, but it's also... Yeah, and I think relative to Toberman, I think you're, you're right on you're right on target there, Stephen. The uh, the outpost estates that he has there is a, still today a very swanky uh, uh, enclave of the Hollywood Hills, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's, uh, you know, you're talking some fences and, you know, security and whatnot just even gain access to that neighborhood. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, and as in regards to his, you know, Terrorman and the Wolfman connections from the character in the film, you know, one of the main, you know, thing, the underlying uh, plot lines with, relative to Wolfman's character is that, you know, he's going to be building a casino in Vegas. The FBI wants him to build, build a casino in Vegas because they want non-Italians, non-Italian white folk 
to be owning, you know, property and real estate along the strip in Vegas was, it's kind of one of, that's one of the underlying plot lines of inherent vice. And again, you know, with the FBI involved with the Vegas piece involved, yes, I agree that the term is, it seems to be a good, uh, a good character a reference for basis for, uh, for Wolfman's character. And again, and, and son actually dipped his toe in, in real estate in, in, uh, in Las Vegas as well. Um, cause he continued on his father's enterprises in the real estate business. Uh, after Clyde Toberman had passed and uh, passed the business on to his son. And, uh, but, uh, you know, given, but given the other details of Wolfman's character with the FBI, who in the film admittedly are Mormons, which is, that's a very strong undercurrent of a lot of the history of the FBI has been, and, and other three letter agencies filled with Mormons, but also relative to the Mormons, the FBI in Vegas and real estate ownership of casinos, they mentioned Howard Hughes' name in the film in, in reference to this kind of storyline of the in Inherent Vice. But I think in large part, you know, Wolfman's character is, is an amalgamation of numerous, numerous people. Toberman being a primary person and, and also Howard Hughes being a uh, character basis for that as well. Because at that same time in 1970, as the Howard Hughes story goes, he's been essentially kidnapped by his FBI security agents, you know, former and current current and retired FBI folks that he employed within his security staff and have basically been shuttled around the world, right. You know, hidden from the public, you know, uh, by these, by security staff, these, these current former FBI folks, they were all Mormons as well. Right. And that's Wolfman. Wolfman's kidnapping is deeply intertwined amongst these FBI Mormons who were, who were hiding them right in the, in the film in her vice. Right. So that's, and to me, that 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 those those salient characteristics of the, of the Wolfman saga is, is eerily similar to what Howard Hughes was experiencing at that very same time in 1970. Yeah, this would have been the um, the Mormon mafia. I'm not because sh- it's also intertwined with um, Intertel, uh, which was it was an early kind of private security, private intelligence firm that had been set up by a lot of these ex-FBI guys that you were talking about, but it was actually a part of um, Resorts International. But I oh, think- was it, okay. What, what was the was that one part of Resorts? Because Hughes Tools operated, um, you know, one of the divisions of Hughes Howard Hughes's enterprises. He had, you know, obviously, you know, he had he had his hands in everything, including Hollywood. I mean, Howard Hughes was Hollywood at one point in time. Yeah, no, it was just, it was a bizarre situation because, yes, the Mormon mafia, quote unquote, had kidnapped him. And then later his security was taken over by Intertel. But Intertel was basically a wholly owned company of Resorts International, which, you know. Gotcha. Okay. Really kind of do. That's interesting. That that draws some more shady characters into the mix there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we could, we could talk a whole episode about resorts. But yeah, I think you could probably see Stephen where I'm talking about as far as, you know, as you pointed out, you know, Howard Hughes was essentially, you know, taken hostage according to some accounts by his Mormon mafia security elements. So, and again, in this film, Inherent Vice, I think you can probably agree. You see the, see the comparison there with Mickey Wolfman, who's suddenly been taken hostage by his his Mormon security apparatus yeah. in FBI that's comprised of FBI agents. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely a fascinating parallel in that regard. And, I, and speaking of that, of, the, of those characters in the film, I thoroughly enjoyed the scene with Yaku Phoenix's private detective character engaging with the FBI guys who have suddenly wanted to question him in regards to the disappearance of, of Mickey Wolfman. 
And, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a funny exchange. I, I really, really enjoyed that, especially when they offer him a book of Mormon. Mormon yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We'll, we'll throw in a book of Mormon, you know, to sweeten the deal because they're trying to recruit him into the COINTEL program, right? And the COINTEL program, you know, they highlight some of the aspects of the COINTEL program with inherent vice, you know, be it the, the militant groups, the, you know, the, the motor, outlaw motorcycle gangs, the black, the black gorilla family, as they call them in the film, but it's the, you know, the black Panthers of the, or the SLA, you know, one of those kind of uh, lefty extremist groups of that era. Um, those are, those are depicted in there as well. But I, I think one thing that it's not as, as obvious in that regard is I think, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say that, Jacqueline Phoenix's character is part of like a Project Chaos, which would be like the CIA's uh, version of the FBI's COINTEL program. Um, but clearly, Jacqueline Phoenix's private detective character, he's hes a spook of some regard, right? Because he, he's playing, I mean, he, he, he's a private detective who um, goes by the name Doc, Doc or, because he is pretending to be a doctor in some sort of free clinic, right? And he's, that's where his office is, is the free clinic. And even when he's exchanging, you know, greetings with the other st staff members of that clinic, they all call him doctor. But he's not a doctor. So I think in large part that, that, that what uh, was being captured by both Penchon and Paul Thomas Anderson in regard to that aspect of, of uh, the main character of the film is he's also a spook. He's a spook operating in this network of other spook activity in the occult world of Los Angeles, the, under the underground scene of Los Angeles. There's definitely some possibilities of that we can get into here in a little bit. But um, one of the other characters I really wanted to get into is the Christian Bigfoot Bajoran characters played by Josh Brolin. So what do you think is the possible real-life basis of this character? Would it be something like former LAPD detective Philip uh, Van Nanner, I believe, who was uh, really big in the OJ thing, but also... It, yeah, uh, I actually knew it. That... Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That's exactly who I think is a large part of a character basis for him, yeah. Absolutely. Bigfoot Bjornsson. Yeah. I mean, even I mean, you're, you're, you're talking the Nor you know, Nordic names. It's not obviously the same, you know, ethnicity, but I mean, it's a, I think it's a good callback to a, a character like Philip Van Adder, who's a legendary LAPD detective from the, the Tate LaBianca house. He was, he was a rookie back then, you know, but he was from the Tate LaBianca um, murders of the Manson family. Uh, he's, he's on the scene. I, I don't actually know, know how to think about it. I'm not sure if he's on the scene of LaBianca, He's definitely at the Tate Polanski house. And then, you know, less than a decade later, eight years later, he's the, he's the officer who arrests Roman Polanski for the rape of a 13-year-old girl on Jack Nicholson's couch. Um, and then uh, he's, the, he's, the, he's the head detective on the four-on-the-four four murders, the Wonderland murders with John Holmes, as we mentioned, with, with uh, relative oh, to Boogie so Nights or the Wonderland film. Murders, too. Okay. Yeah, no, I oh, yeah, he's the lead detective. So by 70, I, I think, I want to say that was 79. It might have been 80 but it was right there 79 or 80. So by that time, he's a lead det homicide detective, right? Whereas, you know, in the previous cases, I think, I, I honestly think Polanski seemed to be where he got promoted, right? So it was after he arrested Polanski where he started making a, a more of a meteoric rise to the top of the LAPD ranks, right? And again, that's kind of where Bigfoot Bjornsson's character played by Josh Brolin in Inherent Vice. That's where he sits amongst the robbery homicide division of, of LAPD. He's kind of the top tier, right? He's the guy, he's a lieutenant. He's he's uh, he's kind of the poster child of the, um, if you will, of the, of the LAPD robbery homicide there. You know, yeah, I think that's a great analysis. Philip Van Adder would be my number one guess as well as far as a primary character basis because, again, he's in everything. 
So not only is he at the form of the formers, he's the head detective on on the O.J. Simpson case. I think you, you know, were thinking of Tom Lang. Um, no, no, Tom Tom Lang's Philip Van Adder's partner. Yeah, but he's he was just, the one who actually had, he was the one who did the Wonderland murder investigation, though. I okay, think. so okay, yeah, maybe maybe well, but Van Adder was definitely there. They were they were partners, so he might have been the lead on that. But Lang was on the lead on with with Van Adder on O.J. Okay, as well. Okay. No, it yeah, just so it was interesting because I was looking at Lang and it looked like he actually had appeared in a decent amount of films and stuff as well. He does a lot of appearances where Van Adder does not. But Van Adder, back when they were in the LAPD together, Van Adder was equally as kind of egotistical as you see the Bigfoot Bjornsson character in, in, in Hair Vice. But Lang, if you're going to mention Lang, he's an interesting guy too, relative to the Wonderland form of four murders. He actually testified in favor of the guy who ordered that hit. Uh, I still I don't know how that makes any sense to anybody. He's an LAPD, detec- LAPD homicide detective who was the lead investigator on the case. And when the guy's coming up for his, the the guy, who, you know, he dodged the charges for years. He was a nightclub owner and, and drug drug dealer there in L.A., uh, I believe of Persian descent. Um, he had dodged the charges for years after the murders, the four on the four murders. Are so his trial for Eddie Nash. Eddie Nash. There we go. Um so by the time Nash came to trial, I think it was probably like 1986, and at his sentencing hearing, Tom Lang's actually testifying in favor of him. But yeah, so they're, they're an interesting duo, the, the, the Van Adder and Lang's. And you can see, you know, relative to Bigfoot Bjornsson's character in Inherent Vice, how he's kind of intertwined amongst this under, seedy underground. Um, you know, you could even call it the deep state, really, if you wanted to. Um, but definitely the seedy underground nature of, of L.A., you know, while he's a robbery homicide detective. He's clearly involved in a lot of, you know, a lot of other business there, which again, Lang and, and Van Adder were as well, you know. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting. I think you know, Van Adder was an interesting basis of uh, character for Bjornsson. I think there's a lot of similarities and comparisons to make there. Yeah, no, they definitely look fairly similar as well. That was another thing that I kind of noticed. Um, but okay, so uh, okay, one of the really curious things I thought about this movie were the references to Admiralty Law. It's uh, first brought up through the Bencinio del Toro character. He's an attorney who specializes in this kind of stuff. In fact, the title of the film actually derives from Admiralty Law. As I'm sure you and many of the people listening to this are well aware admiralty law is a common trope in the sovereign citizen movement many claim the u.s is actually run under admiralty law and offer a crash course on how common law and such can be used to reclaim your rights or vice versa against the admiralty law courts it's kind of combobulated to put it mildly uh jj (laughs) believe this is what uh both tension and anderson are getting at with this movie i mean what's your take no, I think you're spot on target. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely discombobulated way of reasoning and logic. A lot of mental gymnastics to go into those admiralty law peoples. But yeah, I think that's what they're trying to capture. And I think it goes back to these cult groups, as we previously discussed with with uh, Wesley Snipes and, and his Moorish cult group there in Georgia um, on a previous podcast discussion. You know, it, they're not too far off from their ancient alien cargo cultist cousins over in like Scientology in Los Angeles and I mean, it's interesting, too, because obviously the the, uh, the sovereign citizen movement was very closely entwined uh, with the Christian identity movement in the early years. I mean, it's kind of broken away from that 
uh, more and more uh, over the last couple of decades as you've had some different actors get into it. But yeah, so again, you know, I, I haven't totally recall how far back it goes to what particular group, but I mean, I feel like Gail was also one of the first people pushing this. I know. Um, but yeah, it was it's just interesting again because i mean the um the identity movement really did have its origins in la and again you get into the whole thing with toberman and some of this other stuff we're looking at here and also with this sort of historic ties that the sovereign citizen movement had with the christian identity movement it's a fascinating concept and again this is another you know i think really big part of the uh the rev one of the revelations that pension is making in here that's significant into later uh sure do, do you now, i'm not familiar enough to know about the christian identity movement to know the connections to mormonism but in my mind there has to be like oh these, yeah no, there's groups. actually there's a lot of overlap between the fundamental there has to be yeah um, i just I understand the Christian identity movement. I just no, no, there really to... is. Like, I mean, take yeah, there has to be. <laughs> I mean, just look at like Israel Keys, for example. I mean, he actually uh, grew up initially in a family that were fundamentalist Mormons, and then they converted to Christian identity theology, and then he later. I think it embraced Satanism openly by the time he had become a quote-unquote serial killer. But this is pretty common. I mean, again, a lot of these kind of communities, you know, uh, like the fundamentalist Mormon sects, the identity sects, you see like a lot of overlap uh, with sure. like Idaho and places like that. So, and then also just in that same in that same conversation, and another overlap would be the the uh, far the far right uh, white nationalists portions of that the nazi portions oh yeah There's yeah a, well that's between the christian ID, the christian identity movement the mormons you know the lapd <laughs> you know um you know other groups of, of, of that nature you know that you want to see you want to understand why some of these people are acting the way they do in some of these occult the occulted history of like los angeles i think that's it right there like you see these overlaps you see the common ground these groups have right you see the you know the mormons you know they can call they can claim they're not racist they don't they didn't let black people into the into the, into the religion until 1978 so good luck fighting that argument for a while from mormons <laughs> you know <laughs> so you can see the overlap i can see where these groups would get along in some regards for sure all right so a figure who never really peers directly on screen but is referenced throughout is the actor bert uh, stodger i think uh the original owner of the golden fang ship uh, which plays into the Admiralty Law stuff. This is uh, the ship that's been used to transport a lot of drugs that people are looking for throughout the film. Uh, so, uh, JJ, you think he's supposed to be based on Marlon Brando, right? Uh, can you get in? Oh, for sure. He's got Brando. Yeah, he's got Brando written all over him. So, Berg Stodger is kind of the um, kind of the godfather of the underground uh, drug distribution, sex trafficking network uh, uh, of Los Angeles that, that lies at the root of of the of the inherent vice film and uh while he's not he's obviously not the one calling the shots he's definitely principal in this burke stodger character is principal in all of that i mean he's he's likely you know at least it deals with like a consortium of other folks at his level or something but he's clearly near the top making a lot making a lot of decisions himself and running a lot of the operations of the drug operations the the COINTELPRO pro operations the he's the he sits at the epicenter of the COINTEL program the drug trafficking and the sex trafficking that, that goes on in Los Angeles in the in the, in 1970 that's depicted in the film *Inherent Vice*. And in, in the film *Inherent Vice*, Burke Stodgers 
the, the guy that sits kind of at the, the top of the pyramid there at the, at the confluence of these various activities, whereas each one's kind of a compartmentalized. You got Burke Stodger, the Hollywood actor, you have Burke Stodger, the COINTELPRO guy, Burke Stodger, the, you know, the, um, you know, each, you've got each one of these kind of facets of his operations clearly that is depicted in the film compartmentalized. And um, that makes sense. That's that's the way it would work. That's the way it has worked in various examples with within uh, you know th- th- this kind of this kind of discussion of intelligence operatives and whatnot and intelligence operations. And you know, no one party knows what another party is really doing, especially not in another various tangential tangential aspect of the operation. You know, it's, it's information is not shared and disseminated widely amongst all these parties. So you know, uh, you know, you have people like Owen Wilson's character, who's uh, a cog in the wheel of these machines in the film. You know, he's a, he's a dead sax. He's an allegedly dead uh, saxophone player, you know, from a rock band in, in the, the Hollywood Hills and surf rock in the, in the early 1960s, you know, and uh, you know, he's a cog in those wheels and he, he doesn't, he doesn't even know what's going on and doesn't know who he's working for and all these other things. And that's kind of flushed out throughout the entire film between him and Joaquin Phoenix's character as Joaquin Phoenix's character is trying to you know, provide some assistance to Owen Wilson's character in, in, uh, in his numerous dilemmas. But the uh, Burks, you know, getting back to Burke's Dodger, Owen, Owen Wilson even credits Burke's Dodger. He's like, I even says that Joaquin Phoenix is at one, one point there near the end. I don't know who you are. You're a dangerous hombre. You know, I got a call from Burke's Dodger himself. Let's get out of here. You know, I'm clear. Let's get out of here. So, you know, that obviously adds in, you know the the kind of the the further understanding of who Burke Dodger is. He is not he's he's one of the main main people in this in this in this whole un, occult underground you know shady network of operations that are going on in Los Angeles in 1970. And Marlon Brando all day is my number one candidate for the, for the for the real world character base of Burke Dodger, who as depicted in the film is forced to he's a he's a Hollywood star who's forced to leave Hollywood. And uh, he buys this this uh, this ship, the schooner called a, a Golden Fang a sailboat, and um, and then he leaves Hollywood, and, and no one sees him for a few years. And he comes back a couple years later. Suddenly, oh, he, he's forced to leave Hollywood because of his politics. And if, if you look at the time frame in the early 1960s, Marlon Brando was forced to leave Hollywood at the at the kind of at the tail end of the Red Scare, uh, communists, you know, uh, you know, flushing out the communists out of Hollywood. There were the houses on American committee and all that all that business Didn't which is a big thing in hollywood in fact for a while too what's that did brando live on a boat for a while too i can't remember yeah so he he literally got on a ship he bought it he bought a sailboat well i don't know if he owned it beforehand but he he left hollywood you know because of his politics his left extreme communists viewed politics um from you know amongst hollywood uh, there and you know which is kind of weird that the hollywood would have that kind of uh atmosphere at the time where they're kicking out the the, the communists but yeah, he, he left on a ship and went to French Polynesia and he bought an island and they just recently turned, he's owned that island ever since. They just recently turned that island into the Brando Resort. But um, so you're, so and in the film, Burke Stodger buys the ship and goes to, you know, he goes to the South Pacific and he starts dealing uh, heroin, right? Well, I mean, if you're looking for a character who's got a, he's got a ship in the same story of being kicked out of Hollywood because of his left wing politics, but then brought back into Hollywood because suddenly his politics allegedly changed, right? Well, that's Brando. Brando was by the end of the '60s. Brando's back in Hollywood, you know, and he's uh, he's he's being accepted again and, and getting starring roles like in The Godfather. 
All right, so the Owen Wilson character lives in Topanga Canyon. Now, that's a really interesting location. It's right next to what used to be Owen's Mouth, California. Owen's Mouth was uh, later renamed uh, Canoga Park, I believe, which uh, also used to, was used as a shooting location in Inherent Vice. Uh, so this is a town that played a major role in the L.A. Water Wars, uh, featured in films like Chinatown, among others, which I had explored my Albacore series. So a lot of figures linked to the Water Wars, like William Mulholland of Mulholland Drive fame and H.J. Whitley, ended up living there towards the end of their lives. Whitley was actually the original Mr. Hollywood. I dealt with him at length in the second Elmer Corps installment when I sort of got into his possible connections to the Black Dahlia murders. So besides characters like this, Owen's Mouth was also the site of a grisly murder involving the Dayton family during the 1920s. In fact, I think specifically it was 22. This involved the murder of a husband and wife, Clyde and Lula Dayton, who were kind of early health food practitioners and pioneers in uh, L.A., uh, which has always had a long tradition of this, I might add. Uh, but anyway, um, they uh, were killed in 22. And uh, there was a lot of rumors for years that there was this buried treasure that Clyde had left behind uh, in Kathanga, uh, um, in what used to be Owen's mouth. So, yeah, and then, of course, later, uh, Charles Manson uh, ended up having a lot of links to this particular region. Um, this isn't very far from the Spawn Ranch, for instance. Uh, obviously, there was also the Hinman Residency. So, uh, JJ, do you want to get into some of the Manson connections to this particular area here? No, absolutely. And relative to Inherent Vice, I mean, it's very obvious that there's a lot of Manson references in the film, you know, just from the LAPD accusing folks of Mansonoid conspiracies on numerous occasions, accusing Yaquin Phoenix and his associates, um, to just the general, again, the general time frame which it's taking place. And again, Thomas Pinchon lived in Los Angeles at the time, so I'm sure he had a good insight into the, uh, the circumstances surrounding the Manson circus that was going on at the time there. And then uh, makes heavy references in the film to it, both directly and indirectly. I, mean, I think you brought up an indirect one with Topanga Canyon. All right. Well, so to return to like the Toberman character here. So uh, I think it's pretty conclusive that he was supporting William Potter Gale. So the first thing that, you know, we need to understand about the significance of this is the fact that Gale was part of a nationwide network that's been deeply implicated in terrorism, as I had indicated before. And now I'm going to really get into that. So this is uh from a letter that was given to author jim or excuse me ken thomas the author of the uh, co-author of the octopus uh one of the other great works done on the promise scandal among many other fabulous works including the gemstone files and a few other ones so anyway um thomas uh was in correspondence with a reverend bob leroy who had been involved with this uh, whole milieu of the Christian identity sex and so forth uh, for many years. And he wrote Mr. Thomas a letter, or, uh, I believe back in the 90s, sort of explaining this milieu. Uh, and I'm going to read at length uh, because Ken Thomas was kind enough to reprint this in his fabulous work, JFK and UFO, Military Industrial Conspiracy and Cover-Up of Maury Island, Dallas. It's from pages 107 and 108. So, 
In correspondence with the author, Reverend Leroy gave a brief history of the Minutemen, and the Minutemen were considered to be uh, the first post-World uh, War II right-wing militia. I mean, obviously, we can split some hairs about that, but they had gotten going around the late 1950s, early 60s. But anyway, to continue with this, uh, quote, I knew Bob DePew, who was the founder of the Minutemen, continuing with the quote, about as well as any man alive from 1962 to 1980. We split up in 1980 because he wanted to buy my privately owned newspaper in 1979. I agreed to sell out to him for $2,000. That was only one dollar per name on our mailing list. He paid me about two or three two hundred dollar per month payments in nineteen seventy nine and nineteen eighty, then ran out of money and stopped the payments. After a few months of waiting, I consulted a lawyer. He advised me to take the paper back, so I started publishing again in nineteen eighty after moving from New Jersey to or excuse me, to New Jersey from Missouri. The Minutemen group was national and split into three regions. East Coast, Central States, my area, and West Coast, had over 30,000 readers of a newsletter called The On Target, went out in the late 70s, 1962 to 1980. Nearly all of the Christian identity leaders came to our annual conventions in Kansas City, Missouri from 1973 to 1980. I have met them all at one time or another. I was one of the few Baptist ministers who supported the Minutemen from 1962 to 1982. Now, the new militia movement has taken over most of the old Minutemen. DePew and I both became, I believe, uh, believed like Gerald L.K. Smith, but we were not as anti-Jewish or anti-Negro as Smith and also the new identity pastors. The identity people under Sheldon Emery included Colonel Bob Gale, of California, Gordon Call of Harvey, North Dakota, Bob Miles of Michigan, Richard Butler of Idaho, James Ellison of Arkansas, Louis Beam of Texas, Mr. J.B. Stoner of Georgia, Larry McMurray of Montana, K.A. Bedeninsky, KKK of Tacoma, Washington, Colonel Jack Moore of Mississippi, Reverend Thorne Robb of Arkansas, and Dr. Ed Fields of Georgia, etc., were all leaders and editors of small newsletters like myself. Some are still after it after 40 years. Colonel Gale and I both fought the Japs together in Layat and Lausanne. He was about five years older than me, the youngest captain and uh, major colonel later in the U.S. Army. I was a mere PFC, LM gunner, and a parachutist for four years with the 511 uh, Infantry Regiment 3. Uh, the movement got its start under Wesley Smith of California during World War II and grew under Richard Butler and Colonel Gale, who studied under his teachings. Reverend Shemmel Henry operated on his own in Arizona. Others in the state did the same thing. So like the Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, and Methodists, etc., they split up into dozens of right-wing factions nationally. All names were semi-secret and given a number to use on uh, the list of communications. My number was five. 11 given after my world war ii parachute regiment depew uh was number uh 551 etc the fbi finally caught on to this in late 66 67 they began writing phony letters to some of the minutemen signing them 551 etc giving phony mail drops to thousands thus causing more confusion among us or did they that's an interesting point but okay so a few things here i want to get into so 
we've already talked about Mr. Gale here for a minute. Now, Gordon Call is another interesting figure that he mentions as being a part of this milieu. Gordon Call was actually one of the most, or the, really the first really notorious um, proponent of the sovereign citizen ideology. He, of course, had that extensive shootout in North Dakota uh, with the police uh, during the 1980s in which several, I think actually may even have been an FBI agent or two who were killed in it. I can't recall off the top of my head, but he was later glorified by the far right and made into a hero. Uh, and there was even, I think, a documentary made about him uh, that was quite well received in a lot of these circles. So it's also important to note that Call was an Air Force veteran based out of North Dakota. And he uh, was not very far from the Manute Air Force Base, uh, which a certain figure who has been linked uh, to the son of Sam Killings, that would be one of the Carr brothers, was stationed around the same time that Gordon Call was in this area and routinely... Well, that's interesting. ...identity theology. Oh, but there's more. There's more. So another <laughs> one of these guys on this list was a Mr. J.B. Stoner of Georgia, J.B. Stoner was one of the founders and longtime proponents of the National States Rights Party, which uh, allegedly Fred Cohen, or actually there's no alleged about this, Fred Cohen, the uh, St. Valentine's Day shooter in New York, was a member of the National States Rights Party. And he was also alleged to have been a member of the Son of Sam cult. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, that's interesting. He's, yeah, yeah. He definitely is. Pretty well documented, a member of the Son of Sam Cole, yeah. In fact, if you look at some of the locations here that have been mentioned, also Lewis Beam in Texas and so forth, who was based a lot out of the Houston area during this time, then they basically go inside very closely with all of the regions that were given to Maury Terry as being nodes for that cult, the Son of Interesting. Sam Interesting. And on top of that, with all the process stuff that's always uh, linked to it, I will point out that there was actually a member of the Minutemen who later joined the process church of the final judgment and also was involved in the whole discordian milieu. I'm not going to uh, bring this guy's name out right now, but uh, if you read any of Adam Parfrey's apocalypse culture books, you will find some of his accounts and figure out the individual I'm talking about. And also I'll have to do that. Cause I'm, I'm intrigued already. Cause I, I can think of another minute man uh, uh, reference back to not only the inherent vice story, but also the JFK, the Maury Island book you just referenced. And that's Fred Christman. You have um, to kind of court. keep in mind, too, uh, the Minutemen were involved in extensive arms trafficking throughout the 1960s. And uh, sure. Peter Dale Scott has actually done some really good work on this in his two books on the Kennedy assassination that strongly indicates that that camp uh, that they were training the anti-Cuban casters at in, New in the uh, Louisiana area around the lake Um Oh, I can't remember the name now, but there was a big arms trafficking thing uh, where they were probably being smuggled arms from U.S. military bases. And quite a few and the Minutemen were very actively involved in this as they had a lot of ex-military figures among their ranks. Sure. And also I can see Chrisman. I can see Chrisman given his character, you know, some of the other things he get he engaged himself in. I can so, see him be involved in those things. Sure. So, I mean, another thing to, uh, I mean, also you have the connection with Thornley, one of another one of the people that he worked with. This lady uh, had been involved directly in the Minutemen arms trafficking, and then of course Thornley, I mean, the co-founder of the Discordian Society, also had some involvement in the Process Church in New Orleans. So, 
what I'm yeah. I mean, again, at. I think that's an often, I mean, often mentioned but overlooked aspect of the, both the JFK and the process story altogether for these right wing militia groups, and that so, is the fact that the attorney mm-hmm. who incorporated the process church as a corporate entity in this in the United States was working out of Guy Bannister's office there in New Orleans, employed Kerry Thornley, Lee Harvey Oswald, these other characters, Fred Christman would be an extension of that operation, and again, Christman. Goes right back to COINTELPRO because the guy that signed his security clearance, I think this is actually from Ken Thomas's book, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly. Uh, the guy who signed his security clearance at the uh, the uh, nuclear re- reactor he worked at up there in Seattle, Washington, um, the Stanford Center, the Stanford Nuclear Reactor Center there, the power plant. The um, the guy who signed his security clearance for that job was Mark Felt. Mark Felt was the guy who ran. COINTELPRO for the, for the, he was the deputy director of the FBI in 1970. And he's the, he's also later deep throat in 72, supposedly the character deep throat who, who else had helped Alice Nixon from office. But Mark felt ran the COINTEL program for the FBI, which again is plays large, uh, the COINTELPRO, uh, COINTEL counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO is weighs heavily into these, the storyline of inherent vice. Yeah, so to continue with where I was going with this, getting back to the Manson killings, um, another aspect of Manson that is almost never acknowledged, and it's very interesting that it's uh, almost openly brought up in Inherent Vice, was Manson's alliance uh, with the Aryan Brotherhood, which I think was like, what, the late 60s, early 70s, right around the time that the film uh depicts and of course there is the one uh character oh, it kept it kept going though with the, with the girls that didn't go to prison not yeah to, yeah i mean actually yeah manson lost part of his cult i mean to the aryan brotherhood so yeah say because you know a decade later they're living with the aryan brotherhood the, yeah, the girls yeah, are you know? yeah so the, there was a lot more overlap with the aryan brotherhood and the manson family than has ever been acknowledged but in the inherent vice though thomas pension definitely makes this point and again I have not been able to link Gale directly to the Aryan Brotherhood, but it's important to remember that the Aryan Brotherhood was also founded in this same region of California and Southern California and the prisons there during this time frame. And Gale and other people mentioned here, like Richard Butler, certainly of the Aryan Nations fame, certainly did have a lot of overlap later with the skinheads who they tried to recruit. Another guy who was connected to Gale was Tom Metziger, who also had tried to make a lot of overtures with the skinhead community in L.A. around the, like, I think, 80s and so forth. So I think that there, I can't definitively prove this, but I definitely think that there is a strong possibility a guy like Gale would have made an ideal go-between to recruit the Aryan Brotherhood members who had been released possibly into identity theology and certainly for some of the schemes that Toberman might have been considering if uh, he is in fact a representation of Wolfman. And this brings... That seems plausible. Yeah, I could see. I mean, he definitely, he's definitely, uh, he's working in the same circles. It makes sense that there would be some connections. And one final point I want to make about all of this, which is essentially the dynamics of the Manson family. The Manson family towards the end when the crimes really got going had I yet or taken themselves out of society. They had basically gone to an isolated compound. They had started stockpiling firearms there, engaging in almost militaristic type training. And all of this was supposedly in preparation for a race war. 
And this was also one of the reasons given for uh, the framing of some of the killings to try to implicate the Black Panthers and so forth, which has generally been dismissed as nonsense by a lot of researchers. But again, if you're following my thread here where you have this, you know, Toberman character sponsoring Christian identity zones, well, what were a lot of these people trying to do? They were militias. They were doing paramilitary training. They were trying to go into the mountains and set up compounds because they thought, especially in L.A. in the 1960s, that a race war was imminent. So I also think that there is a very strong possibility the Charles Manson was exposed to Christian identity theology at some point during his time in California. And this is an angle that has never been explored, even though if you take the hippie stuff out of the Manson family dynamic, they basically were acting like a right wing militia. I mean, seriously, outside no, of right. the orgies. You're, and even better, right. I mean, there's been rumors for years that that happens in some of these. I mean, really, if they just started taking meth instead of LSD, they would practically be a right-wing militia. So, no, and they were, I mean, they were definitely dealing in meth. I mean, the, with, the, with their relations with the Aryan, Aryan Brotherhood and whatnot, that's definitely one of their main sources of income is the, is the trafficking of meth out of Modesto, California, which is like the epicenter of methhood and California there, which is a slightly different topic, but I mean, it's definitely present still there today with the same kind of networks. Yeah, I think you're on making a good point there. I mean, as far as the Christian identity uh, implications with some of Manson's philosophies, because again, he's not, he was never a hippie. I mean, he's sold as a hippie. He's depicted as a hippie. He's never really a hippie. It was more of a character he was playing. Again, kind of like Owen Wilson's character plays a hippie at one point in the film. He's not really a hippie. He's, you know, he plays numerous, I think he's got four or five different characters in the film Inherent Vice, Owen Wilson. It's the same character, but you, he's seen depicted playing four or five different characters to the general public of Los Angeles in 1970. And again, I just, I don't think that's far off from who Charles Manson was, right? So him having some of this Christian identity uh, philosophies and connections, I, would, would, I mean, you make a good point. You take away the the LSD and just in, in, in Smith and no one's going to have any sort of confusion about who they who that group is. That's a, some white supremacist, right-wing nationalist, uh, you know, meth head, Aryan brotherhood associated, uh, you know, cult. So and it's, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. Basically straight up what the tension is showing is, you know, I mean, we're uh, also in Anderson in this case in the film. And I mean, I presume is from what I've read, this is essentially the same scenario the pension is depicting in the novels. And again, it needs to be emphasized. Pension was living in L.A. It, during the time frame that's depicted in this movie. So, I mean, he also potentially has some insight or knowledge about some of this stuff. So, it's, in my opinion, extremely interesting that he raises this point because this is a dynamic of the Manson family that is almost never talked about, and that is the cross-pollinization between them and a lot of these far-right militia groups. And I think oh, for sure. And I think you're spot on with pension because, I mean, again, it, I kind of relate it to like Ed Sanders, right? Like, so Ed Sanders, anyone's read Ed Sanders, the family, right? And his, his, uh, his you know, expose into the, the Manson family the circus um you know he admits himself that he's able to he was able to achieve more into his investigation than possibly other folks weren't achieved because he was already into the the beat poet the preceding kind of counterculture movement to the hippies the beat poet um uh, you know 
movement, if you will. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, in much in that regard, I think, you know, Thomas Pinchon could very well have had some, uh, some, uh, you know, unique insight into the events of the Manson family and the events of, you know, the, the underground nature of, uh, uh, Los Angeles at the time in 1970. And yeah, I think, I think his, you think he did have a unique perspective and he has put those things into, into the story, into the novel in relative to Manson and some of these kind of just schizophrenic, you know, uh, you know, nature of his personalities. I mean, again, if you were to take look at Owen Wilson's character and inherent vice from like a strategic level, you're going to have that same schizophrenic outlook, right? Because you see this dude doing all these different things and that would make any sense in these groups. In, and I make that point to make this point, these different groups, be it the, the Aryan brotherhood or the, the black Royal family as depicted in, in inherent vice or one of these, uh, some, of these some of these other countercultural sub subculture movements, in my opinion, and I think what Penchon's trying to drive home in that novel is those are one organization and those are the reason why they look like different organizations. Cause that's the Ford. That's kind of the, they have a, they have a forward face and a rear, you know, you know, a rear face, you know, they have a face within their group is one, one collective organization. And then they have an outward facing, uh, you know, perspective that they, that they, they present it to the general public at large. Right. So if you were to, you were to see the Aaron brotherhood and, the Black Gorilla family is just like Jacqueline Phoenix's character does when he first meets the Black Gorilla family character in the film. He says, "You were doing business with who now? The Aryan Brotherhood." He's very confused because to him, these these organizations are at odds. But within those organizations, it's kind of funny too so, because he says like they found that they shared similar sentiments about the government or something like. There you that. go. No, that's exactly that's, like, that's yeah, they, they, It was based on some kind of absurd anti-government alliance, but yeah, like you're saying, it's like in fact they're because again, I mean, the FBI had thoroughly infiltrated like the Black Panther all, groups like that. Yeah, all all those groups, along <laughs> with like a lot of these white supremacist groups, and that's definitely what pensions getting at you have these groups which in many cases are cults that are being managed by the fbi and guys like toberman working with them but it's like there's an even deeper dynamic because i mean a lot of these people are indicated as being parts of cults i mean like we were sort of getting at before the fbi are essentially depicted as extensions of the mormon church in this movie so which isn't all that is accurate it's like that's yeah, a fairly no, accurate that's representation actually, you know i mean that's not really much of a stretch to be yeah. so i mean yeah it's it's just fascinating you see these sort of street level cults and then it sort of gradually works its way up to the more respectable ones to even get to like sort of the main line i mean churches almost quote unquote uh that are actually running some of these things so yeah yeah i, th I think that's i think that's what pension was aiming for i think that was his target it was to depict exactly that and within that storyline within that kind of atmosphere and environment you have other parties warring against each other within the within internally right within their organization and that's depicted in her advice because and and you know this is obviously a spoiler alert but by this point in time if anyone <laughs> is getting spoiled by the plot line then you know go watch the film <laughs> but Bigfoot Bjornsson is the puppet master of the entire film. He is the antagonist to Jacqueline Phoenix's character, right? He's the one pulling all the strings of all the events that go on in Jacqueline Phoenix's um, characters. Um, you know, all the events of the film that occurred on Jacqueline Phoenix are all being, you know, the strings are being pulled by Bigfoot Bjornsson, Josh Brolin's character. Did, did you, did you gather some of that same, same perspective? Yeah, no, absolutely. But uh, one, everyone that comes and sees Jacqueline Phoenix's character, oh, I just talked to this guy Bigfoot, and Bigfoot told me to come up. You know what I mean? Everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, some some of the things are more expressly 
set up in the film and in the narrative that's you know of of phoenix's character throughout the film but some of them are, are more kind of hidden and and again you know they play the line of is this an hallucination is this some sort of strange synchronic synchronistic event that's occurring to phoenix's character and in reality if you really pay attention to the details it's simply Big, bigfoot bjornson brolin's character pulling the strings because well, he's he's upset about other elements uh, within this within this organization he's obviously been operating within as the LAPD homicide detective, whether he likes it or not. He actually goes in to a a, a long tangent uh, uh, berating uh, Phoenix's character in the in the uh, Oriental Pancake House that they're in towards the end of the film, telling him he doesn't like any of it. Like he's not he's not happy with his career. He's not happy with the events that he has to that he has to engage in in order to to maintain that career. And he's upset with the Queen Phoenix <laughs> about all of it. He's hollering at him about it because he's, you know, he's hollering downhill, if you will. Um, but and, and that's actually, it's actually when Phoenix's character in the film, that's when he understands it all. He and if he, he finally realizes what's going on in that scene because his responses to uh, to Brolin there and when Brolin's, you know, kind of giving them, you know, the business about how he, his career sucks and it's going nowhere. His whole, you know, he's his acting career is because he's also an LAPD detective, but he's also a part-time actor. His acting career is is uh you know drying up you know in in one point in the film he even works for wolfman he's doing the advertisement for the channel view estates for mickey wolfman and that again that's because him and wolfman know each other from the from this internal you know you can call it whatever you want the deep state of los angeles or if you will but yeah i think you know that's the scene where phoenix also realizes that brolin's been character's been doing orchestrate all of it right because he says uh, his only response to Brolin from the, from the long, you know, tan, tangent of, of hollering at him about things that aren't even relative to Phoenix's character. He says, I think you got a history you're not telling me about here. Because <laughs> then he realizes what's going on, I think, finally at that point. And, and that's when he takes specific actions in the film and, and kind of and turns a table on people, if you will, that are, that are currently attacking Phoenix's character. He turns a table on them once he realizes what's going on from what Brolin's given him the business about. But Brolin's simply upset because somebody killed his partner, right? Somebody killed his, his, uh, his you know, homicide detective partner and he wants to get revenge, but he can't because that person is a mob hitman that's employed by the LAPD to take care of dirty work, right? So, I mean, I think I think all of those things are likely things that actually happen in real life. Like they're not based on fiction. These are based on actual events. And and a lot of the how the occult and shady uh, underground uh, environment of, of LA was operating specifically at that time, but just has been operating and continues to operate likely still today. Well, circling back to Manson here for a moment, let's talk about that attorney, uh, Crocker Fenway, uh, who's another interesting character in the film. Crocker's, of course, uh, the name of one of the powerful East Coast families that built up California, um, specifically. They were more, though, based out of uh, San Francisco, but they were, you know, Bohemian Groves, the whole nine yards. Uh, anyway, as for the film character, he works at a law firm uh, known as Voorhees Kruger, clearly a reference to the biggest horror villains of the 1980s. That alone made me pay attention to the case. <laughs> right. Uh, so <laughs> you think he's based on a real life figure who aided Charles Manson. Can you get into that for a moment? Yeah. So I think, um, well, the two things I think about the Crocker Fenway character, that that's probably the more notable one. But the first one is. I think the, the 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 surname Fenway is a is a is Penchon's way of because Penchon's a New Englander. He's got New England ancestry and heritage. He's a he would be of the same 
ilk is uh, what he's trying to portray Crocker Fenway as, which would be the Boston Brahmin class of New England, right? The quote unquote blue bloods. And I think Fenway being, you know, Fenway Park in Boston, I think that's kind of his way of saying Crocker Fenway is a, is an East Coast blue blood guy, right? Because he, he he comes off his character comes off as the stiffest, most stick up the ass kind of characters it is, and that's kind of how you would expect. I think generally speaking, that generally is the the expectation of such a the, the quote unquote Brahmin blue blood class of of New England like that. So I think I think right off right off the bat, he's that's kind of, kind of setting him up. And there was a guy like that in Manson's life, and uh, his name is now escaping my head at the moment. But in the film Inherent Vice, they call this powerful attorney who's who's representing these these this various underground factions and their uh, sex, drug trafficking, other activities, and likely is involved in the same the same activities himself because his do- he's you know he's sending his daughter to the booby hatch there in Ohio, which is owned by the Colt and Burke Stodger and everything else. So he's obviously a, a player in the same circles. But there was a guy, and they call him the Dark Prince of Palos Verdes in the film, and here in Vice, the, the, the character Crocker Fenway. Um, but there was this, you know, blue blood uh, New England uh, ancestry type guy as well um, involved in the Manson story. And he wasn't the Dark Prince of Palos Verdes, but I think he was called the Prince of Pacific Palisades, which there's there in the you know Pacific Palisades being a, another one of the the neighborhoods there in the Hollywood Hills, just north of Malibu. And home to Brian Wilson and the Manson family at one point in time, right? So when Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, when the man, man, when Charlie Manson and his uh, and the, the three or four of his girls at the time moved into Brian Wilson's house for uh, the better part of I think 1968, I believe, um, they uh, they lived in Pacific Palisades and uh, and part of and but Charlie already had connections in the Pacific Palisades because when he got out of Terminal Island, the prison there, the island prison there off of Los Angeles. I think 1967, and that's where he met Philip Kaufman, the, uh, the Beach Boys uh, producer, I believe, co-writer of the song Kokomo from the infamous Tom Cruise film uh, Cocktail, and uh, from the 1980s. But Philip Kaufman is allegedly who got Charlie Manson more integrated, or quickly integrated into the Hollywood scene. But he's not the only party because there was this attorney. Charlie Manson got picked up all the time by LAPD. He was well known to the LAPD and LA County Sheriff. He was, first of all, when he first got out of Terminal Island, he's running a, he's running a quote unquote modeling agency on the Sunset Strip. That's where he initially recruited a lot of his girls uh, for his uh, prostitution in the Colt family. Cause he was prostituting his girls out. That's you know one of the things they were doing, but he started doing that while wearing a business suit, not as a hippie while wearing a business suit and with short hair, no beard working on the Sunset Strip, running, I think it was the Sun Talent Modeling Agency, I believe was what it was called. But he's running that, and uh, he's immediately getting into trouble, right, for all these activities, you know, from the from the prostitution to the credit card theft to the the auto thefts. They, they were engaged in a lot of activities, the Manson uh, cult, the Manson family. And there was always one attorney getting them out of everything, and that was this guy from uh, Pacific Palisades, who um, Crocker Fenway in the film has all the – all the hallmarks of being uh, the character, you know, based upon that character. I just think it's very interesting as far as, because again, people think Manson, you know, was like this unknown character, a shady young cult guy. And in the media at the time, they were trying to say these dirty hippies killed these Hollywood starlets. How awful, but that's not even remotely the case. I mean, everyone knew this guy. I mean, he came to the same parties. They were in the same social circles. They were very likely in the same cults together. So 
this whole story of Manson, I think, is, is is better understood by understanding some of these some of these concepts that are portrayed by by in the novel by Pension and and then in the film by by Paul Thomas Anders. So another interesting location in Inherent Vice is, uh, is it OJ, California? Uh, this is a uh, real yeah, OI. OI, okay. This is yeah. a real place that houses the fictitious uh, Christian, was it Christian Don uh, Institute? Chris Galadon? Chris Galadon Institute. In the Which film. throughout most of the film, all the characters are claiming it's an ancient Indian word, but then then uh, the narrator pops in for a, like a hallucinogenic type of, Type of circumstance there with the Aquiline Phoenix as he's driving to Chris Galadon, the Chris Galadon Institute, uh, and tells him, "No, that's a, you know, that that's an ancient Greek word. So it's another, it's a just. For, I just thought that might be something you find interesting. Yeah, no, the throwback to it to ancient Greek, ancient Greek uh, with these with these uh, cult groups. What's your take on uh, the place and the institute or the location so, of the institute, rather? Yeah, I think I mean there's definitely Ohio has a history of. Uh, those those type of uh, quote unquote, as they call them in the film, booby hatches or loony bins, um, and they actually do a great job. Penchon and Anderson both did a great job in encapsulating what was really going on at the time. So, in nineteen at the time of the film in nineteen seventy, Ronald Reagan, then governor of um, California, who actually had just gotten just previous to this these dates, had blocked Jim Garrison's extradition warrant for one of his. Uh, one of his uh, Jim Garrison's uh, suspects in the JFK assassination was trying to get extra out of California to New Orleans to stand trial with Clay Shaw. And Ronald Reagan was having none of it. He blocked the extradition of that as the governor of California. And uh, by 1970, he's gotten rid of the entire mental health institutes of the state of California. And they, and they go over that again in the book and in the film discussing how Ronald Reagan got rid of all the state institutions, made them all private. And as a result of that, all these all these uh, rich folks are sending their kids there as like a boarding school, if you will. And that's, I believe that's how it's kind of referenced by the narrator in the film there. And Harry Vice is, is uh, Yaquin Phoenix is going to visit there at Chris Caledon. And again, I, you know, I, I can see some hallmarks of uh, the Esalen Institute, which is a little bit further north uh, up the coastline from Ojai. Ojai sits about uh, 45 miles or so inland from santa barbara but over mountains so it's sits in a, in a valley it's fairly secluded i was actually there just a few years ago and it's uh, for the first and only time i've, I've been through there and i uh, it's an interesting town there's definitely a new agey vibe to it still to this day and i think that that largely originated around that same time as the the story depicted in Heron vice when i when uh, suddenly ronald reagan made it profitable to start opening up all these loony bins and and uh, for whatever reason, as uh, Japonica Fenway, the daughter of the powerful Turner Crocker Fenway in the film, as she's depicted in the film, she's been growing up, you know, in these loony bands as a teenager. And then again, the narrator 
she mentions that as she's explaining Chris, the Chris Galadon Institute run by Burks Dodger, the, the Hollywood actor who, if you, you know, as depicted in the film, you know, is, is more of a, it's a, it's a, it's a mind control center, right? It's, it's obviously a brainwashing center. They have, they have all the patients there doing all the work is like slave labor. As there was, as Yaquin Phoenix walks into the place, you know, this young girl is pouring soup for, uh, for uh, the doctor, some, some doctors eating in the cafeteria and the doctor giving Phoenix a tour, you know, says, Oh, steady is always there and to the girl. And she's just spilling soup everywhere with the ladle, you know? And, uh, and then uh, she's apologizing to the doctor, you know, like, you know, for not being able to, to, do, to, to, to pour the soup, you know, to spill it. And, and then he makes a comment like, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you would take care of that for me later. You're like, as if she's going to get some punishment for it. Right. And then they go into the, the uh, movie theater they have built inside the Chris Galladon Institute, which is supposed to be a more of a drug rehab center than anything else. Um, but it's kind of, it's kind of loosely depicted as a, a lot of things is Looney Ben drug rehab center and God knows what else. But um, they go into the theater. There's, you see this, the blank stare on all the patients are watching the Burke's Dodger film in, in the, in the movie theater at the Chris Galladon Institute. And they're all just, they look like mind control victims, right? They all just have a blank look on their face. And the doctor who's given Phoenix a tour, he's so, he's obviously so ingrained and so brainwashed by whatever they're doing there. He's, you know, he's, he's drank too much, too much of his own Kool-Aid, so to speak that he's repeating the lines from the Burke Stodger film with like the, the, the biggest glow on his face. And he creeps Phoenix's character totally out. Phoenix is completely, and rightfully so the whole scene's kind of creepy, but you know, Phoenix's character, the look on Phoenix, Phoenix's character's face is priceless. You know, I, I had a very similar look on my face. The first time I watched that scene, I'm like, this is a creepy scene to walk into, you know, and, uh, and definitely reeks of uh, some MK ultra style, you know, mind control brainwashing activities going on there. And again, that's part of the cult's routine is depicted in the film though. So they get the whole routine of the cult is to get the, get, get folks hooked on the, on the heroin that they're, that they're bringing in on the golden fang ship from Burke, from Burke Stodgers ship. Then they're, uh, then they're, then they're giving them the dental services. So you have Martin short, which Martin short second to Josh Brolin. I think Martin short killed it in this film. I mean, the only other person I thought did better than Martin short was Josh Brolin, but Martin short plays the, the guy who's running the dental operations of this, of this, underground cult situation is trafficking in sex and drugs and everything else. Um, and, uh, who Crocker Fenway, the powerful attorney later orders the hit of because, uh, Martin shorts having an affair with his daughter and he didn't like that. And, but, and it's kind of comical. The reasons he didn't like that. Again, these people dispute amongst themselves quite frequently, obviously within their organization, he was more upset that this dentist was, was, uh, you know, having sex with his adult daughter. Um, because of you know the the uh he didn't agree with the tastes he thought the guy was poor class taking him to taking her to to uh, hotels and dental conventions and you know having sex with his daughter in rooms with wallpaper you know he, he seemed to have a real sticking point with wallpaper <laughs> so i just think that that again depicts the kind of the boston brahmin class of crocker fenway but you know he's another guy sending his daughter to these same routines and he's part of the same group and you know i just think there's a lot of mind control aspects with that with Japonica Fenway as well. You can see in her character, she's clearly she admittedly says she went nuts and everything else, and they and they kind of reprogrammed her. So there's a lot of those aspects, and there's a number of institutes again that, that existed in California at the time, not just the Esalen Institute, which obviously has some history of some of the mind control aspects, 
there as well, less so the drug rehab aspects. But there's plenty of drug rehab places, even in more recent years in Los Angeles, that have drawn great scrutiny to my mind, at least. For example, inside Laurel Canyon, the former top secret Air Force movie studio, which was a complete movie studio, soundstage, everything, all in-house there at Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon, Lookout Mountain Air Force Station. That then became a drug rehab center for the stars after the Air Force got rid of it. They sold it to private uh, uh, industry or, or person, and they turned it into a drug rehab center. And then that drug rehab center certainly appeared to serve as more of a mind, you know, mind reprogramming center for some of these Hollywood starlets and stars. And then after they sold it, they sold it to Jared Leto, who owns it today. And Jared Leto, I mean, you want to talk about a mind control actor, look at that guy. Again, now he owns this center that used to be one of these kind of drug rehab, Chris Skylandon style style institutes. You basically take the concepts of Chris Skylandon from the film Inherent Vice. You can apply that to the property that, that Jared Leto now calls his home that used to serve as a as a Chris Skylandon style institute just prior to, to, to Leto purchasing it. And just prior to that was a top secret Air Force movie studio. So do what you want with that information, folks, on the interwebs. But I think that's, you know, right there it's a good it's a good pressure point to point say like this kind of activity as depicted in Harry Vice is clearly still going on today in, in modern day Hollywood. I think I can fill in a few of the gaps here. So well first off would you get back to Oja uh it's Oja, right, California? Oja? Yeah oh, Oja, yeah Oja. Okay. So anyway this whole area <laughs> has a very rich uh occult history actually going back to the turn of the 20th century. And it's based out of a fascinating group that is rarely talked about now called Crotona. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of uh, a rundown of this. It was um, centered around one of the real prominent people here was, uh, oh God, what was her first name? She's referred to as Mrs. Tingley, of course, because that would be her last name throughout the whole thing. Catherine Tingley, okay, who also hailed from New England because, of course, she did. All right, so after Mrs. Okay, by the way, I'm taking this from Southern California, an island on the land by Carrie McWilliams, which is a fantastic book. It was uh, one of the aides to the script of Chinatown. But anyway, <clears throat> continuing here with Southern California, uh, after Mrs. Tingley's appearance in Southern California, the region acquired a reputation as an occult land and theosophists began to converge upon it from the four corners of the earth. One of the early colonists was Albert Powell Warrington, a retired lawyer from Norfolk, Virginia, who arrived in Los Angeles in 1911. Purchasing a 15-acre tract in what is now the center of Hollywood, he established Crotona, a place of promise. The particular site had been selected, according to Warrington, because not only does the prevailing breeze from the nearby Pacific give physical tone to the surroundings, but a spiritual urge seems to be peculiar to all these sections. The hills and groves around Crotona were, it seems, magnetically impregnated. At its heyday, Crotona boasted an occult temple, a psychic locust pond, a vegetarian cafeteria, several small tabernacles, a large metaphysical library, and a Greek theater. Grouped around the central building were the dwellings of colonists described as people whose faces had a consciously sanctified look. Crotona was the headquarters of the esoteric school of the Order of the Star of the East and the Temple of the Rosy Cross. 
on the direction of Dr. F.S. Strong of the Tuftus College and W. Scott Lewis of Los Angeles Research was conducted in the subtler fields of physics and chemistry, psychology, and psychic phenomena. Like Point Loma, the architecture was Moorish Egyptian. At one time, Warrington rented a hall on Hollywood Boulevard where courses were given in Esperanto, which is a uh, language combined different aspects of like French and German and English and so forth, the esoteric interpretation of music and drama, and the human aura. Cortona, in fact, became a considerable factor in the commercial life of Hollywood. Okay, so uh, it's interesting that this, even though it's usually described as a theosophical group, was actually also a very early Russian group in America. I just want to emphasize that here for the next part that i'm going to get into so continuing now with southern california and island in the desert on the next page which is 255 <clears throat> uh, by 1920 hollywood began to encroach upon cortona and dr warrington decided to lead the faithful to oha valley a section of southern california thoroughly impregnated with occult and psychic influences it is the home of edgar holloway the man from lamora who claims to have flown to oda uh, Oha, uh, some years ago, and a great flying fish. The real genesis of Oha as an occult center, however, may be traced to the publication in the early 20s of a magazine article by Dr. Herdlikia predicting the rise of a new sixth subrace. It seems that the psychological tests given in California schools had revealed the existence of a surprising number of child prodigies. And by the way, folks, uh, just interject here. He's talking about the first gifted program, which was launched by Lewis Terman in uh, Stanford at this time. And yes, this was right around the same time that these first tests were being administered. People who uh, tested gifted were some interesting folks, including um, a certain uh, suspect in the Black Dahlia murders that I've referenced a lot throughout this. Uh, but anyway, uh, continuing with Southern California, an island in the desert, uh, Ergo, California was the home of the new subrace. Once this revelation was made, writes the biographer of Annie Besant, who was a major theosophist in H.P. Polanski's organization, uh, continuing now with the book, theosophists all over the world turned their eyes towards California as the Atlantis of the Western Sea. Among those who came to California were Mrs. Besant, who was, quote, acting on the orders of her master and purchased 465 acres in Oha Valley at a home for the new sixth sub-race. And to Oha, she brought the Krishmaturta, the new messiah. This was the boy, by the way, that was molested by one of the OG uh, wandering bishops, uh, good old Ledbetter back in the day. Just throw that out there, give it a little color. Anyway, throughout the 20s, the annual encampments in Oha were widely reported in the Southern California press as thousands of people, mostly elderly, neurotic women, troped to Oha to worship the Messiah. Oha is today the center of all esoteric influences in the region. The Oha Valley has the Theosophists, however, or excuse me, the Oha Valley Theosophists, however, do not get along with those in the Point Loma. Bitter enmity exists between Anna Vicent and Catherine Tingley. The former referring to the latter as a professional psychic and medium and a clever opportunist and there was also a lot of animosity with the Cortana organization as well and Besson's people so there was a bit of infighting between all of these different like occult groups and so forth so anyway I thought that it was uh, specifically very interesting 
that he would pick this specific area because like the architecture for instance almost all came from the crotona institute a lot of the uh you know really stro uh, striking aspects of it in the historic district but getting in here to the whole thing with the drug uh rehabilitation centers and cults and what have you there is something here that i wanted to bring up this called synonym which is a really interesting oh synonym synonym yeah yeah so, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to get into the history here of this for you guys. This is taken from an article in the LA Magazine uh, that came out a couple of years ago called The Story of This Drug Rehab Term Violent Cult in uh, Wild Wild Country Caliber Bazaar. Okay, so uh, uh, launched in the dingy Santa Monica storefront in 1958 by Charles Derredict, it eventually operated centers up and down California, morphing into a utopian community, then a religion and a cult with more than $30 million in assets and upwards of 1,300 followers. True believers shaved their heads, wore overalls, and lived together in synonym compounds, professing an almost slavish obedience to Derdrich, no matter how brutal his methods. Paul Mornanst was one of the few who tried to warn the world of Synanon. The journalist-turned-lawyer first sued the organization in 1977 on behalf of Francis and Ed Wynn, who claimed that Francis had been kidnapped, brainwashed, and tortured by the group for purposes of financial gain, despite her emotional instability. They were rewarded a $300,000 judgment. Morazant worked obsessively to get other members out, lobbying the Marion County supervisors and the state of the Department of Public Health to crack down on Synanon. He was scared. He knew Derdith was capable of violence. As an apostate, Synanon member had nearly been beaten to death. Mornson figured that his own name must be high on Derdith's hit list. Threatening phone calls were coming at all hours of the night, but were really concerning him where the threat was when the threat stopped. So anyway, they eventually tried to kill this guy. But anyway, getting into some of the history of this. The, the attorney, right? They tried to yeah. kill the attorney, right? Yeah, yeah. They put a rattlesnake in his mailbox, didn't they? Yes, they did. But okay, so the history That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so continuing with the article here from LA magazine, a college dropout and a drunk, Charles Dara uh, Rich, bounced from job to job, marrying and divorcing and marrying again. Then he took part and experimented at UCLA testing LSD as a cure for alcoholism. Speaking to an oral historian documenting Synanon's short history in 1962, Derrich called it the most important single experience of my entire life, quote, carrying the drug with unlocking newfound confidence. I became a different person, really and truly, he said. Everything has happened to me since. Synanon, everything dates from that point. Born in 1913 in Toledo, Ohio, Derrich was four when his alcoholic father died in a car accident. His mother raised him a devout Roman Catholic. I believed literally that I would go to hell if I didn't go to church on Sundays, Derrich recalled. But when he was 14, he read his stepfather's copy of H.G. Wells' The Outline of History and became, quote, a militant atheist almost overnight. Soon after, he began drinking. Easily bored, Dare Dierich wasn't one for learning or for working. He spoke in a growl and was overweight, the right side of his bulldog face dropping from a near-fatal bout of meningitis at 29. Dare Dierich <clears throat> came out west to Santa Monica at 40, his second marriage in mid-collapse. 
He floundered for three years in the ocean breeze before walking into his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Partway through, Dara D. Rich marched to the podium and shared with the group. People listened, they laughed, and they applauded. Dara D. Rich was hooked. I went from one AA meeting to another every night, he told psychiatrist Daniel Cassell, one of a number of social scientists to write books and send it on in the 1960s. That's all I did. I was the first one to speak, and I'd speak all night unless they stopped me. After the acid experiment in 1957, he was one year sober at the time, Dara D. Rich became a vicarious reader of philosophy and psychology, looming especially large were the nonconformity exposed by Emerson and self-reliance and the utopian notions put forth by Thoreau and Skinner, and that would be B.F. Skinner, the father of behavioralism that he's talking about. Anyway, continuing with the article, Dara D. Rich was living on a $33 a week unemployment check, and he began to tap her off from AA. When other recovering alcoholics checked up on him, Dara D. Rich was engaged them in opportune meetings. He wore parts grad school synopses and combat group therapy sessions. These get-togethers became thrice-weekly affairs. Then one day, a young heroin addict named Whitley Walker, fresh out of prison, joined the group. As he began inviting other dope fiends to the mix, the language grew coarser, a crosstalk more aggressive. Dara D. Rich loved it. The sessions became known as synonyms, a primordial synopsis, uh, or perhaps seminar, and anonymous. Dara D. Rich, uh, who provided couches for people to crash on as they kicked heroin, would come to believe the addicts were full-fledged adults and shouldn't be treated, or weren't full-fledged adults and shouldn't be treated as adults. The younger addicts took to calling him dad. And this laid the whole foundation for what first was a drug rehabilitation center and then morphed into a cult. And it's interesting that this guy started with this acid experiment in the late 1950s. I mean, it's possible it could have been maybe somebody like Captain Tripps who was involved in this. But, um, of course, I mean, Synanon was later implicated in just a litany of uh, just shady dealings with former members. I mean, besides trying to kill this one guy, I mean, there was just all kinds of charges of brainwashing. I mean, all kinds of other factors. So, I mean, at least in my take, well, I think Esalen, I mean, was probably a, a, something of an influence. I definitely think Synanon was his main target, especially um, during this era, because, I mean, 1970 would have been, you know, probably around like the apex of their influence. You know, this is right around the time they had morphed uh, being, you know, a, uh, a drug rehabilitation center to basically being like a full-blown cult, more or less. But it's also interesting because, um, you know, as a side note to this, uh, to get an example of what the cinema kind of crowd looked like, um, they were actually used as extras in George Lucas's dysotopian science fiction film THX uh, eleven thirty eight. Oh, really? That those yeah. are all those are all sitting on people. Yeah, yeah, the people with the shaved heads. Yeah, yeah, because they were trying to find like <laughs> where would we where would we go to find a lot of people with shaved heads in nineteen seventy <laughs> in Los Angeles and sitting on. Everybody's yeah, not yeah, one, of, all the not one of George movies. Lucas's greatest films, but it's you know actually it's that's a, it's actually probably my, one of my favorite of his movies. I mean, I, oh, it's not it's not awful. It's just it's it's definitely it's dystopian for sure. <laughs> I just I never thought he was a great director, honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as a director goes, I think it's probably his best. The American, uh, he did he did yeah, American Graffiti. That's probably yeah. my favorite of his. Yeah, yeah, that's I a mean, that's a good one. I story the way yeah, everything is good there. I think a lot of the Star Wars movies uh, were better that he didn't direct, but that's just my opinion. But, um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, probably true. Probably true. 
But I mean, it's a fascinating thing that uh, Pynchon, I think, again, is like bringing in some of this history, which is really, I mean, Synanon really didn't even get looked at a lot. I've got to give a tip of the hat to uh, Bryce Truanon, who had brought up some of the stuff, because he was actually forced into a, a drug rehabil uh, rehabilitation center that, if I remember correctly, had been uh, set up by uh, somebody who had previously worked for Synanon. Actually, I think it was called Monarch now that I'm thinking about it, which is... Well, that's interesting. I'm not familiar with that, but that would be an interesting yeah, name, yeah, right? Yeah, because my understanding <laughs> is it's like with a lot of these rehab facilities, a lot of the old Synanon crew has set up a fair amount of them, especially like in the Southern California area. So there is... Or, or again, offshoots from it, right? I mean, it's not just Synanon. Again, yeah, because I think there's a couple of breakaways. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I think that happens to a lot of these groups and for all, you know, for, for the, you know, what you just mentioned with Monarch, I don't know anything about it, but that could be an offshoot of an offshoot of, of, of Synanon or something, you know, it's even better than I thought. Okay, so uh, this is about the Truanon series they did, which was called The Game. Throughout the series, I wanted to show host Bryce, uh, Bryce Belden talks about his childhood experiences in a correctional co-ed private facility called, quote, the Monarch School which had been closed due to allegations of widespread abuse under the watch of its founder, Patrick McKenna, a Synanon disciple. There you go. See, I'm not surprised at all. Time after time, it's, it's almost always an offshoot, you know, of one of these other organizations. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of uh, abuse. And again, I mean, there's a lot of offshoots of this. So it's just, again, this is another thing with pension. I got to give a big tip of the hat to, because once again, I mean, this is not, you know, this film came out in what, 2014. And I think the book was like 2019, 2010 or something. And nobody was really looking at this kind of stuff back then. So this is another thing. This movie. Really yeah. I think the book was like, yeah, like maybe two years before the movie. Yeah. Something like that. Something around those time frames. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. It has gone. It has gone a long time without, you know, I mean, think about that. 1970, 2009, 2010. I mean, yeah. that's a long time for Pinchon to not tell this story. So, I mean, and he's, and no one else has really tried to, to, to capture the events of Los Angeles in 1970 and all the, all the inner workings of what's going on there with these groups. No one's really ever tried to capture that like Pinchon has. I mean, that's what I think is so impressive about it, because, I mean, I think he really does pull up a lot of, you know, the more obscure aspects of the sort of underbelly of L.A. in this era that people don't really talk about very much, like the white supremacist underground, Synanon, I mean, a lot of this other kind of stuff, um, the Admiralty, the sovereign citizen thing. I mean, it's just yeah, absolutely. Um, but anyway, okay, so let's get a little mystical here. So there's a lot of like weird names and numbers that appear in the film. Shasta, Bigfoot, Puck, Wolfman, Sertilege. I mean, li literally translates to spell or charm. Uh, nope. <laughs> Which is the kind of the hallucinogenic nature of her character, right? And then Shasta's middle name is Faye, which again is another name for fairy. Doc's address is 4210. The mysterious location Shasta and Doc are sent to at some point to get weed during a uh, a dry spell has 47 in the address. Uh, the Bermuda Triangles mentioned that's actually where the uh, the Golden Fang was taken by the actor at one point. Uh, Ouija board is a crucial in the plot at one point. Uh Again, they don't really draw a lot of attention to this, but JJ, the film is loaded with a lot of allusions to occultism and mysticism, uh, and they do appear pretty regularly throughout the movie. Uh, so, what's your take on all this? No, absolutely, I think you're spot on. That's kind of what I get was kind of getting towards with the 
the kind of the trippy nature of, of uh, the narrator's character and her actual the actual translation of her name into a magical spell um and the character's name who's also depicting the narrator right so there are two different characters in the film but it's the same person i think again that's kind of the trippy nature that, that they were trying to bring together with that character in the story there and these kind of these occult undertones right yeah you know, the magical undertones of, of, the, of the story which again is a good way to capture the magical undertones of what was going on in los angeles at the time i think that's what they're aiming for right but, you know, with things like Bigfoot, I mean, that happened in, what, 67 in Northern California. So, you know, you know, I don't think I actually think Bigfoots are pretty mystical myself, not an actual creature creature. So, um, you know, I think that, yeah, there's certainly there's some allusions to a lot of those things there with the, with the, with the intentional naming of these, these characters. I think it's a brilliant way to do it, you know, because, again, not only are they, is, is the film depicted in this kind of hallucinogenic kind of trippy nature at times, with these mystical undertones and mystical, I mean, the scene where Phoenix meets Owen Wilson, it's overtly mystical, right? When they're t- discussing the, the golden fang and there's the, the fog and it's, they're, they're talking and coded and mystic language, right? So, I mean, throughout the whole film, with the naming of the characters and the, some of the events that transpire, I mean, that is a common uh, a theme that, that, that Penchon and the novel and in the film by Paul Thomas Anderson, they're, they're definitely perpetrating to the, to the viewer. It's good, definitely a good analysis. There is a lot of those names too. It's definitely, definitely full of them. Yeah, no, I mean it's another really fascinating aspect of it. All right, so to wrap up, let's get into another uh, kind of esoteric take on the film. So, how much of it is real? It's you know, you, I know you've been hinting at this throughout, but it's been suggested that chunk of the movie are actually hallucinations of dog, whether it's Sir, whether it's Sir Regis actually real, for instance, is left up in the air. She could be a kind of muse used by dog. But further, there's the strange relationship slash contrast between dog and Bigfoot. I mean, it, it kind of made me think at one point, are they actually the same person, one man imagining the other as a kind of alter ego or something like that? I mean, I could see where you can see where you kind of get that kind of, uh, you know, Chuck Pally, you know, Fight Club kind of, you know, understanding of the two characters, right? Whereas in Fight Club, Brad Pitt and Ed Norton are the same person, right? Um, there is definitely that kind of, that, that aspect of nature to it. But I think, I think, um, I think I think they're supposed to be. I mean, I could I could see where that you get that perspective, but I, I think the, the intent was Especially there are two the, different characters. The time we see like Bigfoot is in that commercial actually um, for the right. state where he's dressed up like a hippie, and then he starts like you know directly speaking to Doc like in this you know from the television set you know. Uh, no, no, I I see what you mean. It's clearly an hallucination. That's so Doc's mentioning hallucinations and. People are mentioning hallucinations to him. He's writing down, I'm not hallucinating right now. And he, everyone keeps talking about Wolfman, right? Everyone's coming to see him about Wolfman. He's like, oh, what is going on right now? You know, not hallucinating, you know, and which is something I would have to do as a private detective. If someone kept coming up to me about the same, like if different parties within like a very close proximity of time, you come up to me and talk to me about the same character, contacting me about the same events and they're disconnected and they're otherwise disconnected. Right. Cause in, in Doc's eyes and Phoenix's character's eyes, these are all different parties from different areas of, of culture, right? And they're all coming and talking about the same person, uh, Mickey Wolfman, including his ex-girlfriend, who's you know intimately involved with, with Mickey Wolfman as his side piece. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that kind of dances the fence, right? You know, the, the whole film kind of is on the fence line of a lot of things. Is this a hallucination or is this not a hallucination, right? But again, I think that, that, that ties into a lot of the mystical aspects that are going on there because the entire 
Well, a lot of things are Bigfoot pulling the strings in Doc's in Doc in the events that Doc transpires for the character of Doc Phoenix's character in the film. But there's a lot of synchronistic events that are clearly not being orchestrated, right? So there is a mystical nature. There's a there's a, a man-made and a mystical nature of the events that are transpiring in, in Phoenix's character, Doc Doc Sportello. Um, the events that transpired Doc Sportello's life in the film. So yeah, they're, they're, I, but I, I look at Bigfoot and uh, you know, Josh Brolin's character, the LAPD homicide detective, and Phoenix's character, Doc Sportello, the private detective, as more of a yin and a yang type mystical depiction, right? Like, so where at the end they become the same person, right? They're the same person. They they at the very last scene they, they where Bigfoot kicks down his door because they're always hinting at Bigfoot used to kick down his door because Bigfoot used to be a beat cop. There in Gord- they call it Gordita Beach. I'm I, I'm assuming that's more like Santa Monica, right? Um, has more of a feel of like Venice Beach, or I'm sorry, not not Santa Monica, more like Venice Beach. They call it Gordita Beach in the film, but it it's, it seems to me that's a depiction of Venice Beach. And um, it and there, there's a lot of allusions to Bigfoot Bjornsson used to being before he's a homicide detective. He was a beat cop there, and that's how him and Phoenix know each other. Their characters. But at the end, they they come the same person, right? Like he kicks down his door. They both apologize to each other by saying the same words to each other, right? They're both equally as freaked out. They've both been on separate, but you know, uh, uh, concurrent uh, 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 mental declines throughout the entire film, right? They're both kind of going nuts, right? They're both kind of going nuts to the point where at the end, there they're they're kind of they're they're reaching a nexus point in their in their lunacy together, right? And uh, that's when Brolin's character, the, the homicide detective, Bigfoot Bjornsson, grabs the the joint from uh, Phoenix's. Uh, Phoenix is smoking when he kicks down his door, and then you know has a puff, which you know is a good indicator. Dude has just lost his mind. He's you know homicide detective Phoenix is completely freaked out, and then he starts eating all of the pot that, that Phoenix's character has on a tray in front of him, and Phoenix starts to cry. You know what I mean? So again, that's. It's the it's the culmination of both of their paths of, of kind of insanity. They were both traveling together on separate, but you know, concurrent, and, uh, and it kind of is the yin and the yang to each other because you know any any time even in their conversations throughout the film, you kind of get that polar opposite effect, you know, or uh, uh, appearance between between their dialogue, right? Like they're always at a polar opposite, but they're equally also kind of as you pointed out, almost the same entity throughout the whole storyline, right? Where one perspective could be could be could be made that they are the same character in some sort of hallucination. I think that's the fence that that, that both Pinchon and Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to sit on. Right? They wanted they didn't want to go on either side of that fence. They wanted to drive it right along, right down the middle, right on the fence, the entire film. And and I think they did a good job of doing that. Yeah, it's one of the things I enjoy about the, the movie. Yeah, well, I mean, another thing about this too that I had thought uh that was interesting was the possibility that it might have been an indication that the uh um, the doc character was in fact some kind of uh you know mind control victim or something like that for lack of a better term you know i mean sort of getting back to uh what you had mentioned before about him potentially being some kind of CIA asset. I mean, that definitely has some interesting implications to it, to my mind, because um, as far as it went, uh, there were the CIA, I mean, like you were saying, had like its own 
uh, involvement in the sort of domestic activities like Count Akeen to COINTEL Pro. Uh, but what isn't really known about this is that there were separate ones. You had like the really well-known one, which was MH Chaos, and that had been run out of uh, the counterintelligence agency, which was what, uh, you know, the uh, infamous James Angleton had headed for many, many years. Sure. So, yeah, that was his main group. But there was also another one. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to find the name of it right now. I haven't been able to locate it at this point. Uh, but it's really interesting because it was run out of the Office of Security, which doesn't get... Not talking about, not talking about Bluebird or anything, are we? We're talking about Bluebird? Oh, yeah, yeah, show? yeah, we are. We are. And in fact, if I'm not yeah. mistaken... So I think that's Bluebird you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Office of Security is who oversaw Operation Bluebird, and then later that was morphed into Artichoke. And yeah, you know, you're right. They had these different divisions of the CIA. You're definitely right. The technical division, the science division, they all had different similar programs, domestic programs. You're 100% right there. But um, the thing about this that's really interesting is that. Uh, there was a lot of other stuff that the Office of Security, the Office of Security never really gets looked at a lot, but it did a lot of very shady stuff. I mean, besides managing um, Bluebird and Artichoke, and I should point out again uh, to the listening audience, Artichoke was not a part of MKUltra. It was managed by different parts of the CIA. It ran concurrently throughout the time MKUltra was active, and they were both rolled up at the same time in 63 and became, you know, uh, they were sort of broken into, like, various programs. Or transferred to the Office of Naval Intelligence, according to some folks, like... Uh... Well, Bluebird uh, was, was it was a joint military operation. So, like, the Navy had like its own component anyway. Like, Pelican was like the Navy, was one of the Navy components. Right. And when you was, say they rolled it up, they just kind of transferred it to those. Well, Pelican had always been. Part. Pelican existed before the CIA did. It was started in right. like 47. Okay. So, some of these programs actually that were in Bluebird and Artichoke had been started by the military even before the CIA existed. Okay. So it wasn't. Right, but, but, but by the same parties that are creating the CIA is what I'm getting at. It's kind of the same organization and network, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's the OS, though. I mean, it did a lot of other stuff. It was also involved in a lot of black bag organiz operations. There's a, been a sure. lot of rumors for years. Uh, that it was involved in a lot of the domestic assassination operations because, as I have read and been made to understand, a lot of times if the CIA wants to kill somebody, if it's overseas, they use special operators, usually ex, you know, uh, you know, Army, Navy SEALs, that kind of thing. If it's domestically, a lot of times, though, in the day, they would use organized crime. And the Office of Security was heavily comprised of ex-FBI guys and that type of thing, all of whom had, quote-unquote, special relationships with the mafia. So <laughs> right, right, usually right. who... Isn't that also a heavy, heavily uh, Rosicrucian division of the CIA, too? Is that, am I thinking that correctly? No, they were actually the really right-wing one. I mean, they were very, like, McCarthyite and what have you. They, okay. Uh, that's that kind of another interesting dynamic of this. But, um... To quote from this book, uh, MH Chaos by Frank L. Uh, Refikino, who uh, was a member of Angleton's counterintelligence staff and participated in uh, chaos, he was going into some of the things that the OS did. And uh, this is just going into uh, 
1968 reaction to the Martin Luther King assassination. So to quote from this book on page 34, uh, some of the CIA's domestic actions during the convulsive year 1960, uh, 1968 did not involve the Special Operations Group, uh, which is we oversaw chaos on part of uh, uh, the uh, Angleton staff. Anyway, continuing with the book, the CIA's Office of Security activated an emergency security plan at CIA headquarters as a precautionary measure during the riots after uh, Martin Luther King's assassination, the Poor People's Campaign, the funeral of Kennedy, and a few other public events to protect CIA personnel and facilities. The U.S. responded to the Secret Service request for CIA help with security measures at the Republican National Convention in Miami in 68, and later at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago with Helm's approval, but this, uh, the DCI directed that the support given uh, be given overtly. The U.S. was also activated at its command central several times in 1969 and 1970 during the anti-war demonstrations and other protests. In the end, the CIA was not directly affiliated, affected by these activities. In mid-1971, the May Day Collective made plans to harass CIA headquarters. The agency gave permission to the group to hold a news conference on the 28th at its property. Okay, so there's not really too much else there, all right. So anyway, to get back to the thing with King, um, something that H.P. Aurelia, the great H.P. Aurelia, pointed out in, um, it was either a terrible mistake or um, a secret order, one of those two great books. Uh, the guy who was overseeing these domestic operations, for instance, for like the Martin Luther King assassination, and also might have had a role um, uh well, he was already sniffing around Memphis, let's just say, before King was assassinated, was a fellow called Morse Allen, who oversaw the day-to-day -day activities for many years of Bluebird and Artichoke. And from what I can tell, Allen was a big part of these domestic operations that the Office of Security was running. So kind of getting into your point, you know, I mean, if theoretically this guy... And it's also worth pointing out, too, that Angleton was also monitoring uh, a lot of the MK Ultra stuff that Sidney Gottlieb was doing in the you know rival program as well. So, I mean, either whether... It sure, was, like the uh, kind of the free clinic stuff up in Haight-Nashbury with... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of like, regardless of whether, you know, you take him as the CIA officer for chaos or for the Office of Security thing, I mean, there's ties to a lot of these behavioral modification programs that they were doing, which is like why I think it's kind of a, when you get into this sort of notion of like whether or not he's big or he's Bigfoot or whether he's Doc, I mean, you almost kind of, at least I wonder, you know, well, maybe, I mean, he is a cop or something who's been uh, basically programmed, who's been a part of uh, one of the CIA operations. And this again is also another thing that I should point out with the Office of Security is that they maintained really close ties to many of the um, police offices across uh, in many major cities, especially like the vice squads and things of that nature. But the reason being sure. is that the Office of Security, as the name kind of implies, was the Praetorian Guard for the CIA. So if, say, a member was maybe involved in like a prostitution scandal or there was a shady death, uh, that they didn't really want investigated the office of security was again who would be tasked with leaning on the local police forces uh, to you know do the investigation in a certain way so this is no absolutely that's a that's a good way to put it and, I, and again with the free clinic aspect of it that is a very that's a it was a common mode of operations for the cia to to run operations out of a quote-unquote free clinic and 
portrayed doctors as not doc, you know, folks who are not doctors as doctors and doctors working for them as doctors doing other things. Right. So that, that, that's kind of, that's the basis of operations in the film with Doc Sportillo is he's being portrayed, the private detective being portrayed as a doctor. He's working at this free clinic and the free clinic all know all the employees and staff there know he's not a doctor, but they call him a doctor, especially in front of other people. Okay. That's a good analysis you have with the uh, with yeah with the with the uh, security division of, of the uh, CIA because I think it's somewhere in that department is kind of where this Stock Sportello character kind of sits. It could definitely be a possibility, and like I was kind of getting at, I mean, too. I think you know if you're sort of looking for a take of him, I mean, possibly being some kind of mind control victim. I mean, I could see a scenario sure. where Bigfoot actually and Sportello are the same person, and Sportello is sort of like his alternate ego or something. Because again, I mean, it's been uh you know i mean i'm thinking of like the case of candy jones which was going on in this you know kind of time frame where she was almost living like a separate life on the one hand as like a model and then on the other hand doing these jobs for the cia on the side in this sort of alternate persona and i mean if doc sportello is uh you know designed to like do counterculture infiltration or something i mean it does sort of make a certain sense i mean maybe if he is bigfoot he's been you know programmed with this alternate ego that i mean goes into these scenarios and what have you that's an interesting way to look at it I, you know i didn't previously consider too much of that but yeah i mean that is certainly possible and it, it it definitely paints a narrative of activities real world activities that happened at the time as well in that regard for example uh sharon tate the alleged victim of the manson family murders there at the tate polanski household hollywood actress deeply involved in the occult deeply involved in a cult and the occult <laughs> but the uh her father was a lieutenant colonel paul tate of air force u.s air force intelligence and in the wake of his daughter's uh, murder there he grew his hair out long became infiltrated hippie organizations right so you know what was his name when he was infiltrating hippie organizations because it wasn't lieutenant colonel paul tate i can assure you that right so that is an interesting way to look at the, the Bigfoot Bjornsson and Doc Sportello characters for sure. It could be the alter ego type situation of Bigfoot Bjornsson, who's obviously operating within these these uh, this uh, network of, of of activity within Los Angeles. This you know, in a sense, a criminal syndicate, and you know, and is obviously he is expressed throughout the film his distaste for these activities and what he's forced to do, and or how his career's you know the road to nowhere, and he's obviously distraught over the matter. So yeah, that could be a depiction of his alter ego of sorts. Sure. I could see that. But I mean, it is certainly interesting because I mean, you do get the sense that he's possibly trying to, you know, at this point, not just infiltrate the counterculture, but the FBI's co-intel operation to see. Oh what yeah. It is. So that's, you yeah, know, that's, that's a good point. I mean, got this, you know, if he, if we do go with the uh, potential, a possibility that doc and or Bigfoot or, both or the same person or whatever i mean if they're cia assets i mean this could be their way of infiltrating an fbi operation to see what the bureau is up to in this particular case especially with the wolfman thing and the uh, kind of the specter of la and all this other stuff playing out in the background uh, that's a good that's a good analysis because they they do expressly at certain times the lapd and the la uh, district attorney's office is concerned they want intel about what is going on with the fbi and what they're doing because if you recall, uh, Phoenix's character, Doc Sportello, tells his his girlfriend, the uh, junior uh, district attorney there in Los Angeles, Reese Witherspoon's character, he tells her, you know, do you know your friends of the, because she earlier sets him up with the FBI situation earlier, but she's setting him up with the FBI interview, you know, not telling him about it, you know, on a lunch date, 
because she wants intel from the FBI, right? And he's telling her later, hey, you know, your buddies at the FBI have, they're, they're the ones who have Wolfman. They're the ones who've kidnapped Wolfman. And she, she freaks out. She's like, I thought they did. I just didn't know it. You know, she immediately wants to depose him to get that, to get, to get, you know, uh, you know, an actual, put that on the record, if you will. And uh, so, yeah, there's definitely an element to that expressly stated in the film. So yeah, there, there's certainly, there's certainly elements of that there. And I think you make a good point. Well, I think that's a good note to uh, end things on. Um, well, as always, sir, it's uh, been a pleasure to have you on here. It was a fascinating discussion as always. No, oh, absolutely. I enjoyed enjoyed every minute of it. I appreciate the invite and uh, love to have another podcast conversation in the future on any, any one of these these topics. Obviously, I draw everything back to Colts, but I mean, there's there's certain there's definitely some uh, validity to, to those statements as well. And what the how much the, what the validity is and how much it, it is valid, I think it remains to be seen. But relative to the today's discussion, I think Thomas Pinchon, the way he and then later Paul Thomas Anderson in the film and Heron Weiss, the way they've depicted this era of, of LA, clearly no one else has really tried to grasp, you know, this environment and understanding this environment in any kind of, you know, book or movie. And these folks have, have done that. And I think they did a great job at it. And I think there's a lot more out of the territory we've explored today from, from the elements of the film, there's a lot more room for exploration, I, I believe. Absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely gonna have to start reading some more Thomas Pynchon novels. I'm curious to see what else. <laughs> some of the- right. But yeah, well, on that note, we will sign off. For now. Uh, as always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and for your support. So, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures a cancer, everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey, best believe They sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy If we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP DHS and Army Honeywell and L3 Razor wires, UAVs Officer, excuse me, please Said I'm just eating my burrito Not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hoodoo blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If Great White Father don't make payroll Forget about your maypole It's just the one thing That ain't too clear I said people always been Civilization, what?